Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Randy, like I said before I hit record, man, I wanted to intentionally stay away from the line. This is part two, ladies and gentlemen, of our uh, of our chat from earlier. Um, so I wanted to intentionally stay away from Samurai Jack because I knew we could spend some serious, serious time on this show. One of my favorite shows of that era, probably of any era, really, was Samurai Jack. And you, know, you had a big part in that and directing it, man. So uh, I guess we'll kick it off with when did you come on board uh, with Gendy and Craig and Rob and all of them? When did they come out and say, hey, we'd like you to come on and work for Samurai Jack with us? Well, I was kind of a holdover from the, well, first of all, I knew Gendy and Rob and Craig from CalArts. We were all in the same class. And um, I was lucky enough to finish up on Iron Giant and transition on to Powerpuff Girls. Uh, I started on Powerpuff Girls season two. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think one of my first episode episodes was um, the Broccoloids episode, which ended up getting an Emmy nom. So that was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, that was my transition into television. And then actually, while we were while we were making Powerpuff Girls uh, season two, Gandhi was developing samurai jack and i think i showed in the last session the little short pitch bible that he developed and presented um so he shared that with us while all that was going on so gindy rolled myself and a few other people like rob from powerpuff girls onto samurai jack you know and robert alvarez who you know um was another one of those people and then gindy uh, picked a few other people from outside, like Scott Wills, who he hadn't worked with before, and Andy Seriano, who came over from, I think at that time, Andy was rolling off of Nickelodeon and came on as a, as a designer, character designer. Um, and Gendy's, Gendy was really funny because everybody was all stressed about testing for Gendy, but the test he gave Andy Seriano for the design test, I always thought was very fun. All he said was, Hey, you know the cantina scene from Star Wars? And and he said, Yeah, he goes, I want you to develop, I want you to design like five or six characters that you feel should be in that cantina scene, but do it in a style you feel would be right for the show that you know I'm developing. And none of the designs I don't think ever got used, or at least exactly got used, but it was always fun seeing that what people came up with. And I think that got their creative juices flow, flowing on the direction Gindy wanted to go with Samurai Jack. So that was always, you know, kind of fun. Um, and we'd worked with Craig Kelman before on Powerpuff. Everybody knew Craig. Paul Rudish was another one that rolled over from Powerpuff Girls to Samurai Jack. Uh, he, he's one of, at the time, was one of Gindy's kind of core crew people and crew designers and just an incredible talent in his own right. So, yeah, I was just, I just kind of rolled over. Gindy and I were friends. And so, yeah, he, he gave me that opportunity to roll the Samurai Jack. And I was just kind of stepping back and amazed with what Gindy was developing because really it was one of those things that, oh, yeah, this would be really cool to do. Yeah. But nobody was allowed to do it at that time. It was a weird, 
stepping outside of the norm a little bit, which we were all for, but kind of surprised that somebody got the opportunity to do it. We And yeah, and we knew it was going to be something special. Oh, another incredible talent that was discovered on that show was Dan Crawl, yes. who did a lot of the design work, the uh, background design work. And then, of course, Lynn Naylor, who we all knew, we were all fans of Lynn Naylor's from her time with John Chris Felucci at Spumco and stuff. And, and Lynn could not have been nicer. Mm-hmm. And Chris Riccardi, his board work. I mean, the board artists on that show were just tremendous talents. And it's one of the things I tell people about today who think having a successful um, outline-driven show is not that easy because you need people who can storyboard and write. And a lot of times you don't appreciate things until you're you know a few steps away from it. Powerpuff Girls, Dexters, and Samurai Jack, the people that were border, border artists on the show were also just tremendous writers too. So the Samurai Jack crew, you know, you got to give them cred because they didn't always have a lot of dialogue to, to work with. So that meant more board heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Gendy also wanted to do a, a board styling that was unique at the time. Um so Powerpuff Girls, we did everything traditionally on um, paper, and there was three panels per page. Here, I'll show you the difference. Hang, hang on just a second. Yeah. So let's see. So, sorry for that little step oh, no away. So this is a this is actually the Beecher Greens storyboard. Mm-hmm. That's how thick it was. So this is a uh, eleven minute episode. So that's how thick an eleven minute episode storyboard was. Um, since I directed it, I got the director's copy. Um, but you'll see that. The board has three panels per page, mm-hmm. which was pretty, you know, normal at the time. It has any story, any kind of uh, camera notations, and then this is all the slug down here mm-hmm. on the um, on the bottom part with all the timing and dialogue and stuff like that. So that that's pretty normal, um, especially at Cartoon Network at the time. Three panels per page. Uh, Samurai Jack, we did. Um, two panels a page. So Gendy wanted to be able to draw a little bit bigger because he knew the scale of the show was gonna be a little bit bigger. He didn't wanna limit anybody to just two panels. So we wanted to give him more space for stuff. Um, so that was kind of a cool little transition. Gendy was changing the industry a little bit at the time. Um, this is pre-digital. That's why everything's on paper. So, and this is actually, this is kind of cool. I came across this. This is dated May 26, 2000, the year 2000. And this is actually the animation test that we sent out to studios that we were interested in using for the show. So Gendy went ahead and he boarded this. And if you remember the Beatles from the early episodes, Beetlebots, yes. that's kind of what this is. Um, Starts on the ground, long pan, the ground cracks and shakes. So beautiful. It, 
Yeah, and Gindi just um, and then and then uh, like a, the in this shot, the you follow the ground cracking, and then it follows up the canyon wall, and the canyon wall splits, and there's Jack on the other side. I don't know if you can see him; he's really oh, yeah. small right there. And then the Beatles, uh, you know, the Beatles kind of come in, and Jack um, ends up doing a slice and dice. This is a shot from like his point of view of the Beatles coming at camera. <laughs> And this was again. This was just to test. There's no dialogue. We have the typical Jack okay. cut into the eyes and the squinting mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And then Gendy did his three-panel kind of cuts. Right. The sliding panels. Um, and it really, this is just a huge battle scene. And to show some scale, let's see. There's oh, yeah. the Beatles and Jack. Here's them standing in front of him. Mm -hmm. And he's all about scale and dynamics. And then, of course, um, you know, eventually gets into what all Jack's episodes get into, which is, you know, Jack slicing through beetles, chopping them up. Again, this was, the, I don't know if the public would ever see. You can see Gindy's notes here for how the panels would work, the slide-in panels, the one, mm -hmm. two, three. Was that just shots? Is that how he wanted it frame by frame or? It's a single shot. So you can see this one has the one, two, three, one, two, three. Mm -hmm. And he wants to, a lot of times he would come in different directions. Mm -hmm. It'd be like an up, down, slide in or something. So he would want to make sure it's clear which direction the panels should slide in into that scene and have the reveals of the, you know, whatever's going to go on behind it. Um, this is, is, I think we actually used something similar to this in the actual episode where the swishing background and the Beatles gaining and its claw kind of reaches out and you just cut to Jack and it's from the Beatles kind of POV with the sword swing. So anyway, so this was just, this was a fun little bit of Samurai Jack history because um, the public really wouldn't see these things. I mean, maybe they're up on YouTube, who knows? Uh, but at the time it was just to send to studios, give them all kind of a level playing field and say, okay, here's the material, here's the design packet, here's the storyboard and the timing, the sheets. Do you know? Do this little test, and then we'll pick which studios we think uh, we like the best. Um, this is some of the early Samurai Jack design sheets that Gendy and uh, Paul would put together and send out with these things. These are, and these are. This is the, oh, the other thing too is the boards for Samurai Jack. Um, were done on uh, 11 by 17 sheets of paper. So it's much larger in scale. Up until then, like the, this is the Powerpuff board. Oh, you can very see small. It's smaller. Yeah. Um, it's on like a legal page, but all the boards and everything for Samurai Jack were this 11 by 17, this larger scale, um, which, you know, for drawing was a lot of fun. Here's a really rough, like most of these, I think, are Gendis of. Jack expressions and movements and to hand to everybody for reference. Uh, sometimes it's really rough, like this dot eyes type thing. <laughs> sometimes it's got more detail in it and expression. So, uh, and Gindy was really a big advocate for uh, things like, oh yeah, how he carries his sword, where he carries his sword, how he holds his sword. And one of our crew members, Brian Andrews, who was very much into martial arts and He'd be always be the one we would um, go to and check with. Are we doing this correctly? Are we going to get a lot of uh, emails or hate mail? Is that a, <laughs> a special sheet? 
poses and stuff. Um, so the one, you know, one of the things that that benefited us was since it was, you know, Jack was in every episode and we kind of knew him. Uh, we could spend a lot of time doing these kind of sheets for reference. And we knew that we didn't have to deal with a ton of characters and there'd be a few characters introduced each episode, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a super character heavy. It was mostly environment heavy and it was essentially a time travel show with new environments and new worlds almost every episode. How so, difficult was that from you for on your standpoint, being a director, because obviously not one episode to an extent is the same. So you would go from super futuristic to super yeah. back in the day and then everything in between. What is that like for you specifically as a director? Well, so we had the one X factor, which was Gendy. So Gendy, um, he knew each other. So there's, there's different types of showrunners. Gendy's kind of uh, on one end of the spectrum, which is he knows what he wants. Um, he can explain it to you. Um, he can help you visualize it because most of the episodes came from some inspiration of his. So we could always go to him. He was always the source. Yeah. Whether you were a designer, you're like, what should this look like? Gendy would have an answer. So for me, if it was uh, timing, I would go to Gendy and Gendy would uh, help us. He would, he would allow us some freedom. We could go and talk to him, but also there was this kind of safety net, which is Gendy would go over everything. And if he felt it needed to be adjusted or altered, he had the ability just to go in, erase and change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had pretty good instincts about that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, if, if something was new, I would go to him or the board artists and go, what is this supposed to be? Is this supposed to be fast or slow? Or, um, what's the pacing supposed to feel like? Uh, can you give me a brief idea of, um, kind of the sequence of shots? So I know how the timing could break up. Um, and, and Gendy's philosophy for timing still to this day, it makes sense, which is, you know, if you want something slow, have it bookended or close to something fast. If you want something fast, prep it with something slow so that you have those contrasting kind of elements. Um, if you want something to feel super tight and claustrophobic, set it up with something big and wide and expansive so you can have those extremes. Um, and then there's the timing within a sequence. You want uh, quick kind of cutting shots and then you wanna be able to rest and take a breath and let the audience Feel like they're they they can catch their breath before you go back into a series of quick you know shots um and then ideally the board artist would set up those shots so you could see the action even if it's a fast even today with like the jason Bourne stuff or the mission impossible stuff when they have a fight sequence and it's really fast or even uh, another good example is um john wick you need oh, yeah. even if it's fast you still need to see what's going on so part of my job was to make sure the camera was on the character or the part of the character where the hit is happening or the movement is happening so the audience can see that even though it's pretty quick. Um, Gindy also had philosophies about frames, like how many frames something should be on so the audience can read it. If it's more than this, it'll feel slow. If it's less than this many frames, the audience won't be able to see it and it won't read. And then we also had kind of a gray area, which was Let's put it this many frames on that because then Gendy would know in post he could trim some frames. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't really add stuff in post, but you can trim down and speed it up or cut out either uh, frames or 
cut some footage out just to pace it up a bit or to get the right kind of feeling for that. So to answer your question, uh, anything I didn't, if I feel like I didn't understand it or wasn't sure, I could just go to Gendy and I get a, you know, some sort of help on what he, he thought I should do and how I should time it, how it should feel and the pacing. Because he would be the one sitting with Paul Douglas, the editor, in post cutting the thing down. Yeah. So as long as he knew and could prep ahead of time, he was okay with that. So, yeah. Oh, and you know, another big help, just so you know, is uh, something they don't do nowadays that we used to do, you can actually view some of these online, is we would do a, um, a pitch, a pinup pitch where the yeah. storyboard artists would pin it up all around a conference room, and they would go through it. And with a pointer or something, they'd point at the panel and say, this is what happens. Jack says this, Jack does this, then this happens. The Scotsman does this, then this, then an explosion. So as they would pitch it, we'd be in the room. We'd get a sense of the pacing at that point. Mm -hmm. So that was always a huge help, um, especially with, like the aforementioned Brian Andrews. Brian's would reference a lot of existing movies like Conan the Barbarian or um, Indiana Jones, very visual movies. And he would actually tie that into the pitch. He was like, oh, then this thing rolls after Jack, like in Indiana Jones with the, you know, the boulder rolling after him. So we knew his point of reference. Yeah. So that helped us with our timing and how we kind of felt like we understood better after those pitches, how he wanted it to play out. It's uh, always good when you get a visual representation of something, especially when you can go and like, man, I think you know what he's looking for. And you go and watch that movie. And it gives you another reason to watch those movies, those fantastic movies too. Um, when I talked to, you brought him up a, a little while ago, when I talked to, to Robert, um, I had asked him the, the question that I'm going to ask you, when did you know Jack was big? But he, you know, he, he's like, it, it's funny you asked that. And because uh, he, he would say that Jack was big, but it wasn't as big as it is now back then. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that because at that time when Jack rolled out, I don't know if I told you this, but I know I told Robert multiple times. There's no way I could have appreciated that show when I was 12. Because that show came out about 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. Watching that, no way. I just rewatched it for the first <laughs> time in its entirety, like two or three months ago um, from start to finish. And I'm just looking like there's, I, I would have slapped my, my 12 year old self uh, saying like, oh, this show was great back in the day. No way in hell I could appreciate it. But, but going back and looking at that and hearing what Robert told me that, yeah, it was, it was a successful show, but it wasn't, it didn't have the cult following like it has now. Um, but when did you know that this was something special? Obviously, it looked completely different than anything else on Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Disney, what have you at that time. But when did you know? Well, um, I think I knew Samurai Jack was going to be big at Comic-Con in San Diego. Mm -hmm. When we would go down there, Gendy would do, uh, you know, uh, talks in the big, in Hall H or something, or do signings. I think that face-to-face told us that we were getting the response. To, to Robert's point, we did not get the numbers that we had all hoped to get, or we thought the show deserved, but that was really more on the part of Cartoon Network than the network with mm. marketing and with communicating to the audience what the show was and where it was that you could view it. Um, at the time, Cartoon Network had a early not early 2000s Cartoon Network had this process where they would launch shows on a certain day at a certain time. Mm -hmm. And then they would move them to a different day at a different time to have their regular run. So 
I think the audience was confused by that. They would go, oh, there's this new show on. I want to watch it. Um, and then they would come back a couple of times. And then at one point they would come back and it's not there anymore. Yeah. And then they would find out, oh, it's been moved. So I, I think there was a little bit of disconnect between programming and the audience about these shows and where they were going to live on the network. And then the other part was the network, I don't know truly if they knew what they had with Samurai Jack. Um, obviously they had at the time programming that was specifically for kids, primarily boys six to 11. Mm -hmm. they, they had that nailed down. They had Adult Swim. We didn't do any preschool or young viewer stuff at the time, but Samurai Jack, the audience that really gravitated towards it wasn't six to 11, wasn't even 12 to 14. It was kind of like 18 to 37, which is a weird demographic. Yeah. But that was the audience that we found out, even though it wasn't uh, a, as large a demo as six to 11, it was a very loyal following. Um, they were like really into the show. And I think they were a little frustrated that the network moved it around a little bit. But when you go to a convention like San Diego, which we would at the time we'd go to every year, that 18 to 37 kind of males, primarily, not, not only, but um, it was primarily males of that age group. They were really huge fans of the show, sincere fans of the show. They really appreciated for what it was, uh, a lot of the references, um, the, the action sequences and stuff and the imaginativeness of the world of what, and then the kind of the crossbreeding of what Gendy was trying to do, bring in, you know, John Woo-esque um, kind of action into a cartoon or martial arts level stuff with influences from, you know, uh, the, the anime and manga world into American stuff without actually going, oh, this is American anime. It was something unique and different that kind of combined all those things. So at Comic-Con, I got that feeling. Um, and to be honest with you, I was always a little disappointed by the network and how much Gindy had to fight. But Gindy had a little bit of a, an ace in the hole because he was very good friends with Mike Lazo, yeah. who was the head of programming at the time. The two of those guys go way, way back all the way back to like um, Two Stupid Dogs, I think, in the early days of the shorts program uh, back at Hanna-Barbera and Cartoon Network. So Mike believed in Gendy and he believed in the vision. He believed in it so much that they did the, the latest run of Samurai Jacks that aired on Adult Swim, which at the time Mike was ahead of Adult Swim. Mm -hmm. So um, that kind of proved his point. Um, but really, to be honest with you, we all knew it at the studio, everybody working on the show, seeing all the artwork um, that was being produced, seeing the type of boards and stories, getting excited after the uh, the board pitches, um, or when somebody would finish a background like Scott Wills's backgrounds or Roger Webb's color styling. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Um, or or um, uh, Robert Lacko, who did all of our cleanup work. He had a back. His background was comic books. And again, this is pre-digital age with digital cleanup. LACO would get the rough designs from many of our designers like, like Andy Seriano or uh, Craig Kelman or Lynn Naylor. 
and he would put it down on a light box and he'd go over it with a, an ink pen. So he, all of the thick and thin line work for the designs um, of the cleanup stuff, that was Robert Lacko. And there was an artistry to that that added to the character designs themselves and the look of the show itself and kind of helped blend everything together. Um, you know, we had always hoped, it's always the hope that someday you do an art of book. And we thought, and there's still hope, I guess, that someday they'll do an art of Samurai Jack book because the artwork itself, if you just looked at the backgrounds or just looked at the design work, uh, is pretty incredible and kind of stands out. And then to think of all those elements coming together on a show, uh, again, at the studio, we'd see those elements come together and go, this is pretty awesome. So we were just hopeful that the audience would find it. I, I got I to gotta imagine that that if, I guess if, if Cartoon Network would have had a little bit of more foresight to, because when you, when you precondition somebody on a specific day, something's going to drop. That's what my podcast, generally anywhere from five to six on Fridays is the full episode, anywhere from Tuesdays to Wednesdays. I'm trying to nail it down and find out which day works best for the teaser trailers. Um, but for the most part, unless something catastrophic happens, the episode drops and the fans are usually pretty good about messaging me like, hey, man, it's uh, five o'clock on Friday. Uh, this is the time the episode's supposed to drop. So where is it? And I'm like, yeah, something happened. It'll come out tomorrow. But thank you for reminding me that I suck at my job right now. <laughs> um, I, I feel like you guys would have had a deeper fan base. But but going back to you know what you had previously said about the art, I want to see an art of this because you could... I don't want to say this in a demeaning way, but you can literally take Jack out of out of this and then just nothing but backgrounds. And it is beautiful. It is spectacular. I would watch. It's like watching a nature documentary. Essentially, I would watch the art of Jack, just not even Jack being in there, just all backgrounds. The entire episode It's such it's so beautiful the cult, from the colors to the design work, to the layouts, just everything about this show just it's a perfect show when, when, when you really look at it, especially for a fan, I'm pretty sure you guys feel the same way. You guys might have a more articulate way of, you know, conveying that opinion of what I just said. Um, but it's, it's, it's a perfect and it's a beautiful show and you guys hats off to you guys really. So, well, it, you know, the backgrounds are a real interesting thing that I, you know, uh, part of a background for an animated show is it's not supposed to stand out and take away from the characters or distract from the characters or distract the audience member from the story that's going on. But to your point, the amount of thought by Scott Wills and Jenny Gaze Baker, for example, who painted some of our backgrounds, so Scott was the guy behind the look of the show. There was so much thought that went into every environment, um, every background, you know, what time of day, what kind of mood. And sometimes we would put together um, kind of mood boards for the entire episode. So you could start with one particular kind of emotion or mood and transition through the show and have an arc, even a color arc through the show. Um, but yeah, there's so much thought that people aren't truly aware of unless you're doing it. Where's the character gonna be? Um, we have to light that area that the character has to stand out. But then if you looked even further into a lot of those backgrounds, especially like the cityscapes, Lots of little details, little stories going on in the background that unless you just stopped and zeroed in on it, you would never notice. Mm -hmm. um, to all those really moody ones, whether it's a, an Egyptian setting, um, a haunted house type of thing, a castle, an underwater world or whatever, so much thought went into the color stylings and mood of the environments that I think people just, you know, 
which is the intent, they cared about the character and the stories, but you're right. If you extracted them from it and you just had a painting of the backgrounds, they're, they're really pretty amazing. And yes. Scott's real cerebral. He's a real quiet, moody kind of guy, <laughs> lots of opinions. He's awesome, but he cares. He's not just hacking this stuff out. And I think that's again, why Gindy and him blend so well, because Gindy cares. He wants to work with people that really care. Scott, Scott really takes things and pushes things to another level. So, yeah. it, and it shows up. It, it really does. Uh, he's, he's somebody I've been chasing for a while. Um, but a lot of you guys and gals that worked on the show um, are very quiet on, you know, places like social media. So it's very hard to give you guys your thanks. I'm glad I'm getting to talk to you and give you your thanks and give you your roses, man. Because like I said, this show, man, it, I wish I could go back as I am now and watch it for the first time. It felt like I watched it for the first time um, when I watched it a couple months ago. Um, it felt like it felt like that because I'm like, man, I don't remember this part. I don't remember this episode. I don't remember any of the stuff. And you brought up one specific. I don't know if you were alluding to that episode, but the haunted house episode, right? I think it was in season four. Maybe it was either at the end of season three, uh, beginning of season four. I can't remember, you know, where actually I do remember it was right before uh, the birth of evil part one and two. Um, so it was the final season, I believe um, before they did the adult swim one um, that haunted house episode. I don't know if we talked about this or if I talked about it with Robert, I watched that and I had to turn the lights on because during when, when I was watching this, rewatching it, uh, my son, my youngest son was just born and back in July. So the, the whole routine at nighttime was Katie, my wife, she would get in the shower and then I would have the baby and then, you know, she would get out, we would give him a bath. And then she would, you know, feed him. I'd get in the shower. But while she was in the shower, I'd watch an episode of Samurai Jack. So I was watching an episode every night. That episode comes on. Usually the lights are out, stuff like that. I'm watching on the TV in the bedroom. And I started feeling like something was behind me, right? And I just like, I got to turn the lights on because Katie's not here to protect me. So I turned the lights on and then it just, I started feeling creepy. And there's nothing really talked about during that episode you see some dialogue like we talked about earlier very little dialogue in a lot of these shows i mean i said it numerous times gendy is the master of silence he makes you care for these characters without them talking without them giving you a reason just it's all their emotions it's all these these close-up scenes and all this it's, it's just a beautiful it's mastery really uh, of a craft um but that episode in particular man i felt like like i felt like there was a ghost in my room the entire time man i felt creepy what do you remember about that episode? Do you remember much about that episode? I don't think it was one of mine. I think at that time we were, um, it was probably either Renzetti or, or an Alvarez show because I think I was working on one of the Births of Evil episodes. I think I had Birth of Evil part one I was handed. I remember seeing the episode. I, I have a vague memory of doing a little, I think I did some retakes on it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll tell you this, you talked about, you know, Gendy being the master of, of mood and stuff like that. Um, Samurai Jack was a unique challenge in that we did have some uh, reoccurring ideas and elements because it's Jack in pretty much every episode. Uh, so how he moves and how he walks. The challenge of that episode in the haunted house is another good example of because we were considered a Y7 show, we couldn't have Jack cut humans mm -hmm. or animals or anything with any blood. So the challenge was always, 
what kind of situation can we put Jack in where he can fight something, use his fighting skills, um, you know, kill it or destroy it, but there's no blood or anything. Mm. And ghosts was a natural kind of, or spirits was a natural kind of, uh, you know, element to eventually get to. And I think Gendy finally came up with, I think he'd been playing with that idea of a haunted um, ghost kind of story for a while. And finally it kind of solidified with him of how he wanted to tell that because leading up into that, we had um, these Anubis characters in Egypt. We had zombies in the cemetery. Um, we had Damongo. We, you know, we, mm-hmm. we would have robot. Lots of robots got sliced up in Samurai Jack. Clearly, um, so that was always a unique challenge. How can a foe be presented to Jack? And and I think the Gendi was always again being very cerebral about Jack. Um, him fighting things that uh, were internal struggles all the time. And if you ever get a chance to talk to Phil Lamar, the voice of Samurai Jack, I'm sure Phil will tell you, there's a lot of internal fighting um, that goes on with Jack, which kind of mirrors all the external fighting, which we see on camera. But, you know, his his background, his parents, the time travel, the, res- the responsibility he feels, um, this was all internal stuff uh, that, the character had to communicate. And I think the ghost thing was always a part of that, the whole haunted house thing and the ghosts and fighting elements of things that are, um, you you don't think you can kill, but you have to fight in some manner or another. So that's what I remember from the episode. Um, I didn't, I like I said, I don't, that wasn't, I don't think, one of my episodes that I directed. No, I think it was, I think it was Roberts. Yeah. I think, I think it was. Um, and he also played it with a black and white episode. He had like this episode that was almost all black and white silhouettes with characters like a ninja, white ninja kind mm-hmm. of character going in and out of shadows. That was Gendy challenging. Just so you know, a lot of these episodes that Gendy would come up with is he would challenge himself. How can I tell a story like this? Um, how can we do this? And if he didn't have the answer, he'd get the core team together and go, I have an idea for this. How can we work this out? And whether it's a writer like Amy Keating Rogers or Derek Bachman or Paul Rudish or Ricardi or any of these other guys, Eric Weiss, they'd kind of figure out a way. Uh, but Gendy was always trying to challenge himself because <laughs> he really didn't want to do the stereotypical, predictable type of show that was formulaic. Yes, we had some constants in Samurai Jack, but if you tuned in, to watch a 22 minute episode, he didn't want you to be able to predict at the beginning of the episode, how everything was gonna transpire. He yeah. wanted to keep you guessing. Yes, most likely, just like in the television show, Kung Fu, Jack would walk <laughs> into the scene, he'd have some sort of adversary or confrontation. And by the end of the scene, he'd be walking off into the sunset. Okay, but in between those bookends, you weren't exactly sure what was going to happen or how it was going to happen. That was really the challenge with each episode. Now, what I, what I absolutely love about that is you see Samurai Jack is like Batman, right? The reason I cheer and I enjoy Batman is because he's human. Like, I don't want to cheer for an alien because he's all powerful like Superman, right? So it's, it's hard to get behind and back somebody like Superman because you're not Superman. You're not powered by our yellow sun, right? 
you could be Batman. If you lose your parents, you are a billionaire in right circumstances. I don't, I'm not wishing that on anybody, but, but you can, you can associate yourself a little bit better with Batman. And that's what I loved about Samurai Jack. Cause I saw Batman and Samurai Jack, Samurai Jack and Batman. Cause at the end of the day, Samurai Jack hundred percent is a human, right? And what are human qualities? Well, we all hurt. We all feel, we all love, we all have these certain, you know, ticks and traits that you know make us progress but one thing i loved about jack was he loses a lot right not at the end he doesn't win or he doesn't lose the the war right he might lose a battle here and there but that motivates and drives him and and and, and powers him up in a sense he's like nah, i'm gonna beat the shadow whoever's gonna be in my way at the next i like that about a character when you can see like oh he's not a he's not 100 gonna win every single time He's going to lose. So it gives it that human characteristic. It gives that human quality where you can, I feel for this character on a whole different level because he's like me. I've lost some Jack loses some, but he wins. He, he perseveres. Right. And I love that. It was what made it so endearing for me. At least it's like, you see this character and it's just like, ah, oh man, he's like you said, it's, you can pick out if he does X, Y, and Z, you're going to get this by the end of the episode. And I loved how you guys always kept us on his feet. There was a few episodes, shit, there was a few seasons where I was on the edge of my seat almost every episode. I'm like, oh, man, I, I know I've seen this before. How is he going to get through this? Um, with that being said, and this show is as, I don't want to say as big as it is because it got bigger as time progressed, right? Um, did Gendy, or from your perspective, was Gendy on a different level? And what I mean by different level, obviously you worked with them with Powerpuff Girls. Did you get to work with them at all with Dexter's Lab? Uh, a, a little bit. Like, I, I not the... So when he was doing Dexter's Lab, uh, geographically we were very close because that he was in the old Hanna-Barbera building, which is in Los Angeles on Coinga Boulevard. And Gendy and Rob and Craig and Rudish and those guys were all... In, at the Hanna-Barbera building. Across the parking lot, there was this other building. And I was in that other building because I had just started with Turner Feature Animations. Ted Turner had purchased Hanna-Barbera for the library because eventually he was going to start Cartoon Network. He had also started a division of uh, animated features. So I was across the way and I knew Gendy. So I would walk over and we would chat all the time. And then when I went on to Powerpuff Girls, I worked on... Um, a couple of Dexter specials like Chicken Scratch that he did. Uh, and I think I did a, one other one. I can't remember the title. But as far as the regular, the original run, no. Um, I was, uh, you guys probably already know and your fans probably already know, when Gandhi and when we were all at Cal Arts, both Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Lab started as student films. Mm -hmm. They did them their second year. So I saw, you know, I saw the early days of Dexter. And then I got to see from a kind of a close up, point of view just not working on it walking over and visiting him seeing all those guys and the boards and um it was i mean those days were really fun being young just being able to do what you want to do uh having some guidance but really the ultimate goal is come up with something original and entertaining go um yes. and that's what they did and uh it was i, I mean you have to remember um Gendy was competing with Butch Hartman and Pat Ventura, all these other guys who were doing shorts at the time, even uh, 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 who else was there? Well, Robert was there at the time too. Miles Thompson, Zach Moncrief, uh, John Mactor, all these guys were uh, creating stuff. And Gendy was just like, well, this is what I think is funny. This is what I like. This is what I would like to watch. 
And he kept trying to push that. And eventually they're like, okay, yeah, we see the vision in this. Mm-hmm. And he had to alter it and develop it. So I saw those early stages, but I did not work on any of those early episodes. I was an early fan, but I did not have any participation in them. Well, the only reason I asked that is, so I, I love the fact that you were, <clears throat> excuse me, that you got to see, you know, the inner workings of Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, yeah. you know, in the early days, like you said. The only reason I asked that was because he had worked on Dexter. He was doing Powerpuff Girls. Now he's on Samurai Jack. So it's not three of his shows because he was working on Craig's show, but he was, this is his third show he's worked on. Um, did he seem like he was firing at a different level with Jack than he was with Dexter's Lab? I got to imagine it was just something that he's, he got the reps in with Dexter. He got the reps in with Powerpuff Girls. So obviously he knows what he's doing as a showrunner, as a creator. So I got to imagine he's firing on all cylinders here. Did he seem different? Yeah. So to your point, going back to his time. uh, So he spent some time in Spain working on Batman, the animated series, doing animation. I think that influenced him. Then when he came back to the States and he was doing Two Stupid Dogs at Hanna-Barbera, he started to learn the television process from an internal point of view, got the opportunity to do Dexter. That was his first opportunity to, as a showrunner, get, get familiar with working with a crew, keeping, you know, meeting deadlines, um, uh, meeting schedules, all that stuff. So yes, and then he rolled, when he rolled from Dexter onto Powerpuff Girls, where he was really the producer, kind of the executive producer of that show, working with Craig, that was a little bit of a tightrope walk for him because him and Craig were friends. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't always agree, but it was Craig's show. Gendy really knew the process at that point really well. And at times um, took over certain areas because Craig really either didn't want to or didn't have the time yet to focus on those areas. So Gendy focused on areas that Craig didn't feel hundred percent like he was ready to do yet. He wanted to, Craig wanted to work on the boards and the designs uh, and go to the records and Gendy would deal with a lot of the post, uh, a lot of the communications overseas studios. But yes, at that point, Gendy with Samurai Jack, he was able to utilize everything he had learned up until that point and um, kind of pick and choose some people put together a production and again, wasn't trying to in any way repeat himself. Mm -hmm. He didn't didn't want to do the same kind of show he had done before. He was trying to challenge himself. He wanted to do a sci-fi action adventure show. He didn't want to talk down to the public. He wanted to take new and different influences and apply them. He wanted to try new and different um, design and lighting influences and apply them and challenge them. And to be honest, as confident as Gendy was, yeah, sometimes he wasn't sure if it was going to work or not. Yeah. Um, and, and another element that I think people forget, because I think in their minds, they think Samurai Jack is all action and everything. He intentionally would insert, because he had Aaron Springer and Chris Riccardi, a storyboard artist, um, and Charlie Bean, who have an incredible sense of humor. You would get Chicken Jack. You would yes. get the farting dragon, um, <laughs> which was, again, throwing a curveball at the audience. You know, why is this show... Why is this episode ridiculous, silly? Well, it's because we didn't, again, we didn't want every episode, or Guinea didn't want every episode to be cookie cutter, um, predictable type things. And so every once in a while, yes, 
Aaron Springer, who is this comical genius savant, you know, crazy person uh, who worked on SpongeBob amongst other things, uh, was a tremendous talent. His, you know, best attribute is he could develop a story and a, do a storyboard and you had no idea where it was going to go. Yeah. You had no idea. So as an audience member, that's the best because you have to lock in and watch it mm-hmm. to see where it's going to go. Um, so, the, and they, by the way, all these guys that I've mentioned all wanted to work with Gendy. They mm-hmm. all respected him and were drawn towards him because Gendy didn't talk down to people. Uh, people wanted to get their, do their best work for him. Um, so that was another unique thing that I noticed. It wasn't just a job to some people. It was an opportunity to oh, yeah. a lot of them to raise their game too. Because Gendy would almost just by association make you raise your game, uh, raise the bar a little bit. Well, when you see the the leader or the general in a wartime setting getting his hands dirty and doing what he's asking you to do, I, I've always said it, you know, I, I don't know if it came up on our, on our last talk, but I was in the Navy for a little while and I always, it makes me sound like a piece of shit, but I would always work extra hard for somebody that treated me like a human being, that treated me like a person that talked to me like I mattered and shit that didn't talk down to me, that didn't treat me like shit, that didn't talk to me like I was just another number. I would go out of my way. I'm I'm not saying I'd take a bullet for that person because I want to live, but I would go hard in the pain as hard as I can to make sure that that person looks good in every possible light. If I can make sure that it can happen, then I I feel like I've accomplished the goal. That's a hundred percent. That's kind of the situation. Gindy could, Take your boards, redraw them, make them better. Take your designs, give you some notes, make them better. Take your sheets where you did the timing, redraw them, make them better. Uh, he he could 100% get his you know fingers dirty in that. You know, I don't know. It's possible. I don't know if he could um, paint like Scott Wills mm-hmm. or fix you know make do a, a background better than Scott Wills. Gindy would sit down uh, in the editing session uh, typically and. Uh, with a showrunner and, and, and post with an editor, you go into a room, there's an editor. In the old days, it was at a, an old sound bay with the reel-to-reel, but nowadays on an avid, so it's digital. And Paul Douglas, who was always Gandhi's editor, um, would typically sit in front of the computers with the keyboards and the showrunners behind or off to the side saying, I want this cut, that cut, move this around. In the case of Gandhi and Paul, oftentimes, Paul would sit back on the couch and Gendy would sit in the seat and Gendy would just sit there and start cutting the show. I want this done this way. And cause he could, um, again, not every showrunner can do that. They're not cut from that kind of cloth. Most showrunners have, um, they're strong in one, maybe two areas, but Gendy would, he was strong or at the very least confident in multiple areas. And that garnered respect from all the people around him. Yeah. Like I said, man, I've said this a thousand times at this point. I'm sure the fans, the man is uh, a Renaissance man, if you will. I mean, he is hands down my favorite animator of all time, but you brought up one of my uh, probably my favorite episode in this entire series. Like this, the one I think about, Uh, do you remember the board artist for chicken Jack? That episode was so fun. Well, I I believe it was Aaron Springer and, uh, and Chris Riccardi. Yeah. Um, those guys were just ridiculously comically challenged. I think Aaron did um, the farting dragon one too. So when we, as a crew, when we would be called down to, to see the pitches, um, we knew if Brian Andrews did a board or Eric Weiss did a board, 
the uh, uh, Brian Larson did a board because Brian and Brian, Brian Larson and Brian Andrews were paired. In, uh, just in case your viewers don't know or you don't know, uh, storyboard artists are typically cast and paired up and Gindy would pair certain people up. So he would pair up Brian Larson and Brian Andrews. Those guys typically did um, action stuff. Then we had Chris Mitchell and Eric Weiss. Those guys could do action, but they could also do comedy. Mm -hmm. So they could go either way. We had guys like um, uh, the aforementioned Chris Riccardi and Aaron Springer, just comic geniuses. Um, Charlie Bean, Charlie Bean would do a board once in a while, comic genius. Uh, and, and Charlie understood action, but it was more of a, a smoother, subtler kind of action. So Gindy would pair these guys up and cast the scripts to them. Oh, this is a comedy one. I'll give it to Riccardi and Springer. Oh, this is an action one. Let's give it to Brian and Brian. And he could, he would work with them. But Gindy also, again, to your point of, he was on a, like a level that he could communicate with them. We would do multiple passes um, on a storyboard. So you would have an outline. Uh, you'd hand that to the board artist. There would be, again, he would launch them. And then he'd come back and look at thumbnails, really small, tiny little drawings to see where they're at and what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. Give them notes on that. They would take those thumbnails, turn them into rough boards. Gendy would look at that. Then when they felt like the board was, you know, pretty close, that's when we would have a pitch. Gendy would, uh, along with the crew, see the pitch. And then after the pitch, he'd take, you know, just old school post-it notes. Yeah and a pencil or pen and he'd walk around and he would draw and or write a note on a panel and stick it on there and go well i'd like this to change or we don't need this um i, I think that's one of the things that's missing from nowadays with digital pitches of storyboards for television you can't step back and see the entire episode and when you do that a lot of times you can see problems we're too heavy here we're too light there there's too many repetitive shots. Oh, we set something up here in the first act and we didn't pay it off in the third act. So we either need to pay it off or get rid of it or alter it. So you can step back and just see it. Um, Gindy would do that a lot. There was a lot of stepping back and looking. And if the board artist or somebody else in the room, you know, had a different point of view, he would listen to you. And look, all the smartest people I've ever worked with, Brad Bird and Gendy, for example, um, they knew how to listen, but what they also were able to do is if your idea was good and benefited the show or the character, they could see that. If there was a different approach or if their, their thoughts were stronger and benefited the show or the character, they would convey it in such a way that you didn't feel insulted, yeah. um, which is uh, one of the problems these days. You didn't feel demeaned. Uh, they would show appreciation for your contribution and your thoughts, but they would politely explain, this is a better way of doing it. Here's why. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, okay, yeah, I see that. Um, and you respect that. Uh, so yeah, again, you know, being able just to see the whole board and do the post-its and stuff is kind of a lost art nowadays. Yeah. Like, like I said, those, <laughs> that episode in particular, I don't, I don't know what it was. I was either having a really, really rough day and I needed something to laugh at, or I was having a really, really good day. And I was two or three joints into that day. <laughs> and I see the chicken episode again for the first yeah. time in a long time. And man, just from start to finish, I had a smile on my face the entire time. Um, as we're getting ready to rotate to the fans questions here shortly. So 
Well, before we before we do that, let me okay. share the couple of things I'm gonna I was brought to share with you guys because these things aren't often seen. So um, just real quick, I'll go through. I won't show you all of these, but Robert mentioned I think one of his favorite episodes was the bounty hunter episode. Yes, and this is the rough model pack that was drawn by Craig Kelman for the bounty hunter episode. It came he did it in blue pencil. Um, characters names here. This mm -hmm. is. This is how many drawings he did for that entire episode. If you remember, it was kind of a bottle episode where it all took place at a cabin. So I'll share just a, a few. Like he did the front pose for this character. Beautiful too. And then he would show a profile for how to, you know, how he should be designed. Um, rear pose. Oh, there was a sequence where they were kind of styled. So he would show how they would style when they were talking about the characters. Um, let's see, there was a big, this big Russian dude. Yes, I remember him. <laughs> yep. He was cool. Uh, and, you know, Craig is a master at, in all of his stuff, it's, if anybody studies design out there, repetitive of the theme, textures, um, straights against curves, they're all in here. And it's all the things that make good design good. Um, but sometimes you don't think about them. So that was that character. Let me see what else we got. All the different points of views of that character. Um, here's him as a special pose with his hair all messed up, blown up, because he had to do a special pose for that. Um, and at one point, I think within the story, while they were telling the story, they go into like stick figures. So Craig designed what they would look like as kind of simple, uh, very, very basic stick figure type characters. Um, there was this swordsman dude who was all snooty and snotty, yeah, full of himself. Um, there was oh, there was this guy that looked like almost like a Star Wars character. Oh, yes, that's so cool. I wonder if that's what kind of led Craig, or not Craig, excuse me, uh, Gendy into possibly doing Star Wars. Or getting so, one Star Wars. Yeah, so there's an interesting story about that. Oh, here's a here's a good. So this was so since I color copied, as you can see these. So this was one of the. This is the female, and there's a post-it. I don't know if you can see it. There's a yellow thing there. Yeah. There was a, so if this was the original, I could peel back that post-it, and you would see Craig's original drawing. So Craig liked a lot of this, but he just wanted to change something in the face, so he threw a post-it down and redrew it, and then would hand it in this way. Um, so a funny story about the Star Wars stuff, it, I forgot who initiated it, um, but Star Wars was interested in doing some very short, at the time they were thinking about one minute long episodes of some of their characters, because um, this was after they had done the three prequels and they knew they were going to do some more movies. Um, or I'm sorry, was the first prequel I think that had come out. And they were going to do some more movies, but they wanted to keep interest in the Star Wars uh, property for the fans in between the movies. So they thought, well, let's do some cartoon stuff. They can be one minute long, not a big deal. So I think that George Lucas was familiar with Gendy from Samurai Jack and some of his work. They ended up setting up a meeting I think it was Gendy, and I know Brian Andrews, I believe, went up to Skywalker Ranch to talk to George. And my favorite story that Gendy, you one of these days, you'll you'll meet him and you'll ask him this. 
there's this hilarious story where George and Gindy are talking and uh, George Lucas is telling Gindy, uh, well, you can't really make money anymore in movies. And Gindy's going, well, you can't really make money in TV either. Now, the irony, obviously, to that is, you know, George made a ton of money in movies, but uh, George did a bunch of Star Wars series now on television, primarily on at Disney. And Gindy, you know, not knowing it at the time, has made a bunch of money and had a lot of success in features mm-hmm. with the Hotel Transylvania stuff now yeah. and other things that he's working on. So they've kind of flopped and proved that they're both wrong. And <laughs> both of them are complete geniuses, but they are capable of being completely wrong as well. Um, so Gindy came, you know, Gindy came back down. And you also have to understand the other reason that this worked is Derek Bachman and Paul Rudish, who were working with Gindy at the time, are huge Star Wars nerds. They knew the worlds, the environments, the characters, the lure, all that stuff. So they were into this. The biggest problem was that one minute time limit. Um, Gindy convinced them eventually to stretch it out to like two or three minutes. So it gave us a little bit more time. Um, but that's those little short things were really what allowed us to do other longer form stories later on. Um, so that's, you know, those little short things allowed us to do the Clone Wars stuff and tell a bigger story and have longer shots. Um, so that's, there was kind of a step-by-step thing going on there, but uh, I think those were a lot of fun. Gindy, I think, joked during the Emmys when he won an Emmy for Star Wars that, you know, he was he was saying how, yes, yes, he created Star Wars. He was jokingly telling the audience at the time, you know, thank you, I created it all, which obviously was just a big joke because um, everybody was a big fan of Star Wars and knew it. And it was funny because it was, those little short things and that little run of 2D Gindy Clone Wars that really got Disney thinking once they bought all of the uh, the Lucas stuff, all the Star Wars stuff, to do the animated stuff that now runs on Disney Channel and Disney Plus and all those things. If it hadn't been for Gindy showing them what could be, yeah. who knows what would have happened. Um, but yes, Gindy was the driving force, but trust me, Paul Rudish was in there, Derek Bachman was in there with stories, huge fans of that. Uh, and that was, again, kind of a, a blessing. I know Gindy wanted to probably do more, more stuff with those things. Mm-hmm. And he had a unique opportunity to add to the folklore of that show, like where the crystals come from, they create the lightsabers, for example. You know, Yoda's backstory was uh, revisited a little bit. Um, so, uh, and the Mace Windu stuff, a lot of people, their favorite thing is the Mace Windu fight with all the droids out in the desert and how you could get so much action with so little dialogue and all those expansive shots and how he used the force. Oh, that was, by the way, that was another thing that Gendy mentioned to all of us early on is he really wanted to show the force being used. Um, I think Paul and him may have felt in the movies that wasn't really dealt with enough or showed enough. So all of the bolts coming out of the, the droids flying off like bullets, piercing the other droids, um, or just them pulling apart. Those are things that I think we all wanted to see in the live action movies, but never did. Yeah, um, It's rare you get an opportunity to go, ooh, I want to show something. I've always <laughs> wanted to show, and that's kind of what they did. 
Uh, so real quickly, before we get into your questions, I'll show you. So this was an episode I did direct, and it's the Sirens episode. Again, Craig did the designs. Now, here's the difference sometimes with a show. So here on this side is the, the amount of drawings done for the Bounty Hunters episode. And this is the Siren episode. Holy it's a shit. little thicker. So Craig kind of went to town on this one. And, and I don't know why he chose you know red or black pencil as opposed to blue, but he did. I'm glad he did because it really pops. Yeah. Um, so he would do, let's see, the, there's the girls. There was... Um, it's another fantastic episode too, by the way. Yeah, I don't know if people... Well, some people are probably too young, but there was this whole thing with these um, uh, seamen and pirate characters that were really homages to Love Boat. If you look at that episode, all the characters from Love Boat are represented in this episode. Really? Kind of an inside joke, yeah. Um, Whose idea during, was that? I, I don't know if it was Dandy's or Craig's. I don't know where that came from. I just remember seeing the drawings going, hey, wait a minute. That's the bartender from Love Boat. That's the doc from Love Boat. That's Julie from Love Boat. And I went, yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> There's this dude. This is the old guy at the, excuse me, at the seaport where they, they start the episode. Um, well, these are always kind of fun to see for your people who are going to be potential designers. Not only do you have to design those main characters, but if there's a bunch of people at a village or something in the background, mm -hmm. it helps if they design those too. You can't just forget about those kind of people. So I think this guy was on camera for maybe two feet or something, or maybe a little more than that, which is goes by in like three or four seconds. Mm -hmm. He's just a guy walking in the background, but Craig was like, Oh, I want to design him. This is how he, I want him to look. Um, which I always, we always like those guys that are in just the background characters. Uh, here's the thugs. Here's a group of thugs. I think they were pirates or in the bar or something. Yeah, that's um, really clean looking too. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you can see a lot of these. There's an underdrawing. Some of these that you can see, like even here, there's there's been eraser marks where you go, oh, I want to get rid of those things in that guy's yeah. helmet. Um, he'll change his mind. So that was my, I think I mentioned... Craig would drop stuff off and Gindy and I would rush over because Craig wasn't in-house at the time. He was working someplace else. Um, we'd rush over at the model pack and start flipping through it. It was like Christmas morning or something uh, because Craig is just a master of even a simple fish. He would do these repetitive uh, scales. I love the belt on the fish too. <laughs> right. Proportions. He would break up the design. You'd see the straights against curves. Again, these are all basic fundamental design elements just applied in a really smart way um oh this guy was great too because this carries over that fish element he's got you know these so scales cute. all over him he would break up the shape with larger shapes like his belly and chest uh the little legs on the big body contrasting all that stuff it's just really smart but you can see he i mean if you look close he would change everything wasn't perfect he would do a pass he'd erase redraw um so anybody out there that's a designer if he you know, you can erase, you can redraw, you can throw a post-it down, you can change it if you, you know, as long as you think it'll make it better. Um, more thugs. But this episode was a really fun episode to work on. Uh, and eventually, let me get to some of this other stuff. Robot shooting. Do you have any of this stuff digitally that uh, you might be able to email over? Oh, I can scan stuff. Uh, okay. Here's a good, here's a, Here's a dragon character I may have mentioned. So in the previous one, Craig did this really long dragon. And obviously it's 
bigger. So he would either draw it on a bigger piece of paper or tape on a piece of paper. I think he, this is a copy. I think he taped two pieces of paper so he could finish the tail. And then he even did further adjustments on the tail. There was a post-it here. Mm -hmm. But um, if it's not perfect, redraw it. It's fine. Um, and then obviously this was the character at the end that the sirens turned into at the end of the episode. It's almost with Beetlejuice the desk. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It almost has that Beetlejuice kind of influence to it. Um, but can you also like the fire we did with Demongo and it kind of plays off of Aku's eyebrows, which was always the flames. But you know, this model pack was a lot of fun too. There was there was no bad Craig Kelman model packs. Um, and even to this day, the stuff he designs, what ends, I think, this is a personal thing, I think his rough drawings a lot of times are better than what ends up on camera because you can see all the little uh, chicken New scratches, the underdrawing, the eraser marks and stuff. Um, and it just shows nobody's perfect the first time. Sometimes you have to adjust and, and do a little trial and error to make something better, and that's okay. So, um, so yeah. Um, but I'm happy to answer anything that I can answer from you or your, your viewers. Because uh, as I stated with the first uh, interview we did, uh, Iron Giant and Samurai Jack to this day are still two of my favorite projects that I got to work on yeah. um, for different reasons. But, you know, I just, I get, I get a lot out of them. And if people enjoyed them, uh, that adds to it because we don't always get to work on projects that we like working on or with people we like working with. So. And like, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I told you uh, with the last one, with the last episode, but getting to just sit back and hear everything I got to hear about my favorite animated movie, you really made me feel like a fucking kid again, man. I was just sitting there and it was like, watching or listening or even hearing or thinking about that movie in a different perspective. Cause I got to talk to, to you and you worked on that and I'm just sitting there thinking like, man, and then just all the behind the scenes information on what Brad would do and what everybody, all these animators, writers would do a voice. And it was just, it was one of the coolest experiences I've got to have on this podcast. Um, so I thank you for that. Um, before we get to the fans questions though, there are a couple things I wanted to ask before, you know, before the fans get you. Um, the one, one thing was, hypothetically if somebody comes up to you it's like i've never seen samurai jack i'd love to watch this episode is there one or two episodes that you would know 100 percent for sure that you would get this person into samurai jack these would be the two episodes you like if you want to get into this show these are the two you should watch wow um well the birth of evils those are one oh, and two are really good classics uh, so uh I have a couple of personal favorites because I worked on them, though. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, Robot, the, the giant robot, I think it's Robot X, where Jack goes inside of a giant robot. He swims underwater, goes inside yes. of a giant robot. So it's like personally, the that, yeah, so that was like one of my favorites because I got to direct that one. And um, there was some epiphany moments on that one with some timing of what Gindy requested and what I did, and we got the animation back, and I was like, oh, wow, that's exactly what we wanted. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't have to work as hard. Um, so I, I really like that one. Um, let's see, what's what other ones? Oh, the there's a Four Seasons one that Brian Andrews did that each 
part of it takes place in one there's a, a spring summer winter and fall represented in the episode mm-hmm. that one's really great and Domongo Domongo is one of my another one of my favorites the villain the twist and the twistedness of the villain and that back and forth uh, and then finally so here's here's the one that I would say for everybody to watch because again not just because I worked on it but because I got it was something that on many levels uh, I think impacted me, which was Mad Jack, which yes. is Jack yeah. fighting himself, the red and black version of himself. Um, and I say that because I think all of us, sometimes our anger gets the best of us and you have to learn to control your anger, which was essentially that episode. It was Jack learning to control that anger. There was also a few really fun comedic moments with other bounty hunter characters uh, in that episode, but that battle within himself being played out in the episode, uh, I thought from outline to board and record to timing and sheets and backgrounds and stuff and storytelling and pacing, you know, I feel like that one really worked out. And then lastly, I'll throw another one. I know you asked for two, but I, I can't help but mention. Oh, it's perfectly fine. Um, I had a lot of fun working on 300 plus one as well, because mm-hmm. we were all all majorly influenced by uh, Zack Snyder's 300, Frank Miller's 300. Yes. And again, just like the Star Wars thing, anytime you can take something, inspiration from something and reapply it and create shots that you wish you would have seen or ideas you wish you would have dealt with, the 300 plus one episode was again, a lot of, a lot of fun to play with timing and crowds and storytelling and stuff. Um, there's some, just so you guys know, in every episode, there's, there's no perfect episode. So in every episode, there's some stuff that I still look back on and go, oh, that looks kind of weird. No, it might be a timing thing or a design thing or a shot. So people who work on the episode usually see the flaws. People who don't work on the episodes just see all the the fun and goodness. But again, on all the episodes that I've mentioned, I think they're mostly fun and goodness, a lot Mm -hmm. of fun eye candy that's enjoyable. Um, and I, like, like you, there's not a lot of stuff I rewatch and still enjoy, but I, even though I worked on those and know what it took to get there, I can still truly just hundred percent enjoy those, those episodes that I mentioned. Yeah. I, I, until you brought it up, I forgot about the 300 plus one, man. That was just him looking at him. Was it, was that the same one where he was like, oh, you're going to use that little sword and they were using spears and shields and shit like that. Or was that a, or was that a different one? Oh, I don't know if that was that one. But I know, I know he hit up underneath the shield at the end, and they weren't sure if he made it out, type of thing. Yeah, so. well, well, that was when he kind of they did the um, the armadillo kind of move yes. with all the shields and the balls, and yeah, he talked them through waiting and getting closer so they could attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your King Leonidas was jacked too, man. He was yeah. huge. <laughs> yeah, that that. Again, that influence from 300 and Gerard Butler and all that stuff. And then the battle at the end with the big machine, you know, it's man versus machine type thing. Um, so that was, it was fun to visualize that challenge. And it was also fun uh, thematically going from Jack, it starts with him crawling by himself on the side of a cliff. And then you end up with uh, this big battle with this cast of thousands kind of thing, which again is mirrors a little bit the movie and the comic book of you know one man making a difference Mm -hmm. and you're battling all these um overwhelming numbers and overwhelming elements so yeah again 
there's messages in all these. Some of them are more obvious than others. But if you look and you think about it, in most of the Samurai Jacks, there's some kind of takeaway that the audience can, uh, a positive takeaway that they can leave the episode with, whether it's relatability or understanding or something. Yeah. You know, Gendy was being a little bit cerebral with all that stuff too, and trying to, again, go a little bit deeper than a lot of cartoons did at the time. Yeah, you, like I said, you guys knocked this one out of the park. Last question before we get to the fans' questions. Sure. When you sit back and you think about Samurai Jack, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, humbling. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty humbling because... Look, you don't know when you're in the middle of that kind of stuff. You don't always know, oh, this is going to be something big. Um, but it was humbling from a number of reasons. Uh, the show, I felt, was successful. The crew was incredibly talented. We had, uh, because of Gendy's relationship with some of the executives, he had a little bit more leeway, which is extremely rare. We could do things that hadn't been done before, tell stories that hadn't been told before. And, you know, once you're removed from that and dealing with the rest of the world with all of those other limitations put on you, you go, you know, we really should do more of that other stuff that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was fun to do. But you also realize that's a riskier endeavor for the people who control the money and the schedules. They, they typically like to do things that um, are more tried and true, are more of a guaranteed success, a hit, they'll get their money, make their money back, that kind of thing. So to work on those unique properties, you really are humbled by that opportunity and not just the finished product, but the process to get to that too. Because for the most part, it was an enjoyable process. And I think we all, the entire crew, uh, liked and enjoyed working on it. It's one of the few shows, it's off camera here, but I have one of the original Samurai Jack posters that everybody signed, including Mako, who did the voice of Aku, yeah. and Phil Lamar, our voice talent, um, our voice actor who did Jack. But everybody, I went around to everybody because that was, and I, I don't kind of uh, fan out all the time, but at that, by the end of that run, I knew there was something special with that group mm -hmm. of people, so I wanted to make sure I had something. So I have that. Um, so yeah, that was, it was just a humbling experience. That's beautiful, man. Like I said, this show from start to finish is a masterpiece in my eyes. Um, so we're going to rotate to the fans questions. Uh, so don't be upset if we don't get to your fans question, because there was quite a bit. And a lot of these questions were inadvertently answered when Randy and I were chatting, um, but we're going to get to as many as we possibly can. Um, Nikki Hutchinson wants to know, can you tell us what it was like co-directing alongside with Gendy or Craig McCracken on things like Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack? Now we talked that you would, you know, open door policy type of thing. Um, but you got any cool stories about possibly directing with, you know, Gendy and, and Craig that we might not have hit on? Well, uh, Craig was more of a visual kind of type of director. He knew visually what he wanted, shots, camera angles, um, design, you know, from a design point of view. Craig's forte is design. He's a tremendous designer. Gendy is like um, uh, dealing with more of a Scorsese type thing. He knew most of the elements he wanted to deal with. He was thinking, he would think sound early on. He would think um, camera movements, excuse me, like how fast, um, 
when to do it, you know, aesthetics frame. Yeah. Um, Gendy would, you know, Gendy knew the visuals too, the boards and things like that, but Gendy kind of took it a little bit deeper and uh, to the point that if Gendy felt when he would hand something to uh, Ronzetti, Alvarez or myself, he could tell you, you know, here's some thoughts I have for this sequence and give you some notes on it. Mm -hmm. Craig wasn't so much, didn't care so much about the, the timing of stuff. He kind of trusted everybody. Gendy could do that. And, and Gendy was also thinking, and Craig, I think, eventually got to this point where Gendy would think about sitting in the editorial room, cutting the episode. If he would be thinking at the earlier stages at board and about timing, if we do it this way now, I can do this later. Mm-hmm. And he would create it, it would create opportunity for flexibility for him. So he was thinking a few steps ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool, man. Uh, so some of these names are funny. Comedy ain't a joke, wants to know. Uh, were there any themes in Samurai Jack that were inspired by other media? Have you noticed any cultural impact? Actually, we'll just do a question. By, I didn't realize this was question by question. Uh, but yeah, were there any themes in Samurai Jack that were inspired by other media? Obviously, we talked about 300, you know, but. Yeah, yeah definitely comic books, movies. Again, he had an extensive uh, movie collection. And if he saw something, whether from an old movie or if we would all, you know, go see a movie, if he liked something, he would come back in the next day and be influenced by it. Um, yeah, uh, art imitates art. Yeah, I mean, uh, even the Bounty Hunter episode, there's been episodes like that. Um, uh, like the Haunted House, the Haunted House one is is inspired by horror or thriller type episodes. Mm-hmm. The the Jasons, the Freddy Kruegers, all that kind of stuff, um, which we all, there's a familiarity as a viewer with that. We just put it in a different form with different characters. Um, Sam, you know, Sam Raimi's another one who did that kind of thing that we would kind of uh, imitate or spoof from time to time in episodes. Um, again, he's a big sci-fi fan also, an action fan. So yeah, he would pull in stuff from his influences, whether it was Scarface. Oh, we did a whole episode that was inspired by um, um, Pulp, uh, Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Fiction. Yeah, because we had like um, these little gangster dudes and they had similar names to Mr. White, Mr. Black. Oh, Reservoir so, Dogs. It was Reservoir oh, Dogs. Sorry, yes, you're right. Reservoir Dogs. Exactly. It was a Reservoir Dogs kind of reference. We, so there's another example. Uh, we would do it all the time. Craig, uh, we did a whole, Craig was a giant fan of Big Lebowski. We did a whole episode where the, uh, the mayor does a whole Big Lebowski type thing. When uh, Miss Bellum gets kidnapped or he thinks she got kidnapped. There's all these shots that are right out of Big Lebowski. We even called Craig uh, the dude for a while because he would wear this big cardigan because he was such a fan of the show. Um, yeah, all the time. We pull stuff from television, movies, comics, comic strips. Yeah, to the person who asked that question, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We just, the, 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 the intent was to never be so obvious that the viewers would go, hey, that's a ripoff of this. Yeah. We, we, tried, we tried to do homages as opposed to shot by shot you know, ripoffs. Now, when you bring up the Reservoir Dogs, I didn't go straight to Reservoir Dogs. What I went to, and I asked Robert about this and he shook his head no, but I, I still want to feel like I'm, I'm half right or at least a little bit right. Um, the thing I got from them with the little gangsters, uh, shit, what was it? Um, 
dastardly and muttly um the wacky races that's what i got from it like those gangsters from there that were trying to kidnap penelope back this is i'm i'm not dating myself here because i watched this shit on boomerang and cartoon networks this is an old cartoon but that's what i thought it was he's like absolutely not he's like i don't know what it was but it it wasn't that i'm like damn it man i was i was hoping that that, you know that that could be an indirect influence because we all did watch those those old Mm -hmm. episodes and i don't know if you got robert to laugh during your interviews with robert but he laughs like Muttley. We used to teach him <laughs> about that all the time. His laugh is dead on Muttley, uh, unintentional, but it's dead on Muttley. No, um, I, I don't think I've gotten him to laugh yet. <laughs> you got to try to do that. But uh, but yeah, again, we would pull, you know, we there was a speakeasy type thing in that one uh, with, uh, with the little gangster dudes. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any of them that I can remember that were, that there's an actual point of reference. We did a Western one, which to this day was well, most of us consider Gendy's jumped the shark because we did. We went, we went to the old west. There was a train. There was a bounty hunter. There was a fight on top of a train. That was the jump the shark episode on Samurai Jack. We think. Um, so just like when Stallone got to go back and redo Rocky Four or something, Gendy got to go back and revisit the character. Thankfully, in this newest season that aired on Adult Swim, and kind of course correct a lot of stuff that maybe got off track a little bit. Now, when you say jump the shark, did you just throw in a 66 Batman reference there? Well, jump the shark goes back to happy days, but yeah, no, jump the shark. Oh, is happy yes, Fonzie, days. when he was jumping the shark. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's that Actually. reference. Yes. Okay. I, I didn't know if you were. <laughs> did you ever watch the 66 Batman series? So With the, the shark that bites him and the shark repellent. Yes. Absolutely. Shark repellent. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. This is the throwback podcast of the day. So comedy ain't no jokes. Got a couple more here. Okay. Have you noticed any cultural impact that Samurai Jack has had in pop culture? Ooh, no, I, I, I haven't seen that. Um, uh, you, you know, I'm not the one to ask. The one to ask would be the people who watch the show and are <laughs> taking the influences from the show and plugging it into things that they do. Uh, I haven't seen that. Um, so we'll check back in 10 years. You'll check back in 10 years. There you yeah. go. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Was the lineless style of the show hard to animate? I don't really know what he means by that. Lineless. Uh, well, sometimes we did self-color lines. That might be what they're talking about. There was, but there was still an, a line. A self-color line is when instead of a, a black outline and the color in the middle of it, the the exterior line is a different color, like red or something else. Mm-hmm. But that was still on Samurai Jack was not handled digitally. It was still hand inked and hand colored and everything so no and it was all uh jack was all animated traditionally on paper so it didn't matter how you know how it was colored or anything like that yeah got you um and his last one was we talked about some of your favorite episodes but i don't think we talked about your favorite scene what was your favorite scene to direct you got one that stands out or maybe two that stands out well Okay, so we'll go back to the giant robot, yeah, the Pacific Rimmy type one. There's a sequence of shots where the battle's going on and they're just in a, a wide shot, one robot on one side of the frame and the other one on the other side, uh, just before it all, like, you know, the blasting, all that kind of mm-hmm. happened. I enjoyed that um, because on Powerpuff Girls, Gendy went in depth with me talking about this dynamo episode that they did where there's a giant 
version of the Powerpuff Girls fighting this other monster. And Gindy had timed out all of the rocket blasts that leave this giant robot of the Powerpuff Girls. And we, I remember him telling me that, and then we kind of applied that similarly to this robot fight. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that. There's no dialogue or anything. It was just all action and fight stuff. But how often, I, I, even to this day, I've never really got to do another just robot on robot kind of battle for, you know, goodness or anything like that. Uh, so I enjoyed that battle sequence in that episode. That was a fun episode. Uh, when I watched it the original, when I watched it the first time when I was a little kid, I honestly don't remember that episode, but going back and rewatching it a couple months ago, I looked at that one. I'm like, Oh shit, this is about to be guys. You've uh, yeah, it was just, I was so happy to see. I thought it was going to be like a Kaiju versus Kaiju, you know, Godzilla versus whatever. And the fact that it, it went where it went, I was like, Oh, this is so fun. I really, I really enjoyed that episode. Um, Flip wants to know, uh, when it comes to making a combat scene, what live action sources inspire you when it comes to composition or choreography? Well, similar to what we talked about, it's good composition and good choreography as opposed mm-hmm. to bad composition or bad choreography. So <laughs> uh, my personal feeling, I when I would teach st- animation um, and storyboarding, I say go learn design because those elements of design you'll get you're going to apply to almost every element and they apply in my feeling to choreography for fights which is you have to vary the timing it has to if you want something to look fast set it up with something slow and mm-hmm. slow can be no movement also but then also you have to pace it out you have to have breaks for the audience so they can catch their breath when you're doing fast you have to you have to make sure the camera's clear and showing and following the action so the audience knows what's happening and it's not just a a blurry mess. Um, So those kind of things. And then the choreography, it's a design. It has to work well within a square rectangle because our boards, our TVs, all screens are all rectangles. So anything you design, start with that, make sure it works within that um, and make sure it works very clearly and roughly. What's hard to get people to do now is to do simple composition with simple shapes and simple colors first, and then start blocking in the character, their arms, their legs, their body, the expressions and that stuff. Because if the composition works, the other stuff will work just as well. It'll be even more clear, but everybody skips steps. They skip thumbnails, they skip doing roughs, they skip doing uh, like black and white compositions for the shots. And they go right to drawing all that detail and everything. And it doesn't work as well. It looks very muddy. So composition is really the key with doing any kind of action sequence. And then timing and pacing follows. To expand upon that for just a second, was there anything that you wanted to get in there that you might not have gotten in there? Obviously, you talked about the, the Pacific Rim style. Um, was there anything else that inspired you on the outside that you're like, man, I would love to see if this got into Samurai Jack? Well, well, I don't know. I mean, I, you, to be honest with you, this is like an insider thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the other influences for our show, I mentioned Kung Fu, the television series, but yeah. another influence is something like Conan the Barbarian, which mm-hmm. Oliver Stone wrote. And Mako was the little wizard in that. And Mako is the voice of Aku. Yeah. So I always felt like we should have thrown in more inside jokes about mm-hmm. Conan the Barbarian and Mako's character from Conan the Barbarian, which we never did, which is okay. Um, but we even 
to, I think, to one of the other questions, if I remember correctly, we did a homage to Conan with Jack, you know, essentially crucified up on a tree, similar to what happened in the Conan movie, too. Mm -hmm. um, almost any movie you could think of that had a single loner character who was kind of an, a hero, but an anti-hero at the same time, we probably pulled from at some point. Yeah. Did um before we go to the next one, did you work on the episode where it was the robot that was a hitman? It was like a John Wick before John Wick episode. You know what I'm talking about? He was protecting. Yeah, the I don't think I did. I remember Demongo, but I don't think I did the hitman one. It was very noir esque vibe. Yeah, I, beautiful I, I'm, I'm trying too. to remember that one. I it at this point it's all a little hazy. That one's not as strong a memory. It's possible. But I don't, I feel like that was a, for some reason, I feel like that was Rob Renzetti's episode. I could be wrong, but I feel like it was Rob's episode. That was another beautiful episode. It was just, man, that season you guys were hitting on a different, different level for, for everything you guys were doing. Um, Zartan wants to know, we touched on this a little bit, I think. Uh, when you saw Jack for the first time, what was your first opinion on him and the story? Well, the first opinion I, when I saw Jack was, he looks a lot like the professor from Powerpuff Girls, <laughs> um, which, you know, he, he evolved a little bit, but he's still a little, he still has some character traits. Um, and Gendy was working on Powerpuff Girls when he developed it, but there's a style continuation. Uh, what was the second part of that question? Uh, what was your opinion on him? And then what was your opinion on the story when you first saw it? Um, well, my, my opinion on the story was... <laughs> Hey, how come you're able to do a time travel show? Because Cartoon Network uh, had always, the executives had always said they didn't want to do pirate shows or time travel shows. How did you get them to do a time travel show? <laughs> and, and just for, so your viewers know, time travel shows are difficult because you don't have a lot of reuse of your environment. So you have to create a whole new world each episode, which is costly and time consuming. So Gandhi convinced them and we got to do time travel episodes so we were in new environments every episode. So that was my first impression was, wow, you got them to do a time travel episode. Uh, and then once I saw the artwork, I was like, wow, you got to do a time travel episode. This is awesome because the worlds did look different. Mm -hmm. um, the one with the Critchalites and the, the mammoths looked different than Demongo's episode or the, the, the what we talked about earlier, the... Um, the little uh, gangster dudes looks different than jump good. Or there were so many different worlds to play with and have fun with that Jack got to go to underwater worlds with underwater creatures. And then he'd go to castles with the Scotsman. And you could have half an episode with just the Scotsman and Jack on a rope bridge. That was know? phenomenal. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I got to do the second episode with the Scotsman, not the first one. I did the second one. That was a lot of fun. Because John uh, DiMaggio, who does the voice of the Scotsman, always did just phenomenal reads. Now, I'm probably reaching here at this point. Any chance that that episode, maybe Gendy might have saw Cliffhanger the night before? Remember yeah, it's possible. I mean, we're all, we're all fans. I mean, I can't say 100%, but I'm sure he watched all kinds of episodes. You know what? I bet you, well, because it had elements of that, but also had elements of the Rope Bridge of Indiana Jones also. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then who knows what anime or, you know, other influences he saw. I mean, lots of people have done rope bridges. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Speaking of, did, did you get a chance to watch the episode I did with Craig a few months back? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Now, 
Did you know? I'm pretty sure you knew because you worked on the show. But did you know that Mojo Jojo's cadence was from Speed Racer? I did not know it was a Speed Racer. I remember Craig showing us the. You're talking about his dialogue delivery, right? Yeah, yeah, his cadence. So yeah, no, I didn't know that that was from Speed Racer. I um I knew that the design of the character was from a live action series with a guy in a monkey mask, mm-hmm. and that was always something that Craig found fascinating. Craig loved all those um, Japanese mo- live action movies with monsters and stuff, Godzilla type things. Yeah. And those characters, the villains that were always brought into those things always fascinated him mm-hmm. from a design aesthetic. So, yeah. And then when Gendy did um, Symbionic Titan, there was a similar kind of carryover character with the villain from Symbionic Titan that almost had a Mojo Jojo-esque vibe to him, but in a more stoic kind of way. Yeah, when he told me that when he was on the episode, I was just sitting there. I was blown away. I was like, how have I never put two and two together? Because I used to watch Speed Racer on a consistent basis. And he's like, yeah, me and Robert would just sit there. That's what we would do at nighttime when we'd get off of work. We'd go home and we'd watch Speed Racer until we passed out. And I was like, shit, man, it all makes sense, man. The cadence, the delivery, everything. Uh, it was a little nod and a little love note to um, to Speed Racer. Um, here we are. Uh, Wacko Jacko 86 wants to know. Uh, what was your favorite action scene from the show and why? Favorite action scene? Well, again, I liked the robot one, robot fight. Um, I liked the fight with Mad Jack and I liked the, the 300 plus one fights. Um, let's see. Well, you know what? If you want to do, uh, this will take us everybody back to early, the, one of the first episodes of Jack. <laughs> where we realized our limitations was when he was fighting the Beatles, those little big beetle bots, mm-hmm. and he was trying to protect the little archeologist characters. Um, Jack destroys all of them with his swords and he's covered in oil. And people probably, I'm assuming they put this together. That was the first sign that we could not do blood. Mm-hmm. We knew we could not do blood. The intent is that Jack is covered in blood after that battle. He's bloody, everything's bloody. But, you know, you couldn't do that in a kid's show. So what do we do? He fights robots. They spew oil. He's covered in oil. So that final shot of Jack standing uh, shirtless, dripping with oil and everything right after that big battle, that really was pretty awesome. Now, it's, did you ever watch SNL? Oh, yeah. Chris, you know that I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it was Chris Farley and he had his own show and he would have people on and he had, uh, you, you know where I'm going with this. And he's like, hey, Paul, you remember when you did such and such? Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> it seems like I'm doing that now and I apologize. But every every time we start talking, it, it just it's something starts flooding in. I love the shoe episode as well, where Jack broke his shoes and he had to get new shoes. It was such shoe, a phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. I, um, again, I think that was a, a Riccardi. I think it was Riccardi Springer. I know it was Riccardi, but I think it was Riccardi, another Riccardi Springer episode. Yeah, that, that, that was just a, that was a great episode. Um, oh, oh, let me, let me, there, there's another episode. I just, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me earlier. Cause I think Chris Mitchell did it, that I had a, a blast doing. Um, it was, uh, it's the, um, the rave episode where Jack goes to the rave and then the DJ turns his, you know, all of his speakers into like a robot and fights Jack. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool episode too. Uh, again, storytelling and color and design wise. I thought all the designs that were done for that episode were really uh, done very well. And into to, 
you know, you were talking about Gendy earlier. To this day, I still hear Gendy in my head going, because he would give us beats. The music hadn't been generated when we started artwork. That was all done later on. So for I don't know how many weeks, all I, all I heard was, ns, 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 ns. yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal, man. Uh, Cameron right then. Uh, you and Robert Alvarez are both remarkable animators and animation directors. As he is much older, I'm sure he became a mentor to his younger colleagues. What was working with the mechanic like? Because he refers to himself as a mechanic quite often. Yeah, so um, here's the interesting thing. When I started on Powerpuff Girls, Robert was working on the show, but he was in a different building. And I, I would hear Gindy talk about this guy, Robert. I was always intimidated by him. And then we relocated, the studio relocated, and we were all under one roof. And I, um, I had my own office for a little bit, but shortly after that, on Foster's, I think it was on Foster's, um, I shared an office with Robert. So all the time on Powerpuff and Samurai Jack, I, I had my own office. I didn't have to sh you know, share an office, but I got to talk to Robert a little bit. And Robert is very, as you know, very pragmatic and direct. Mm -hmm. um, no fluff. Robert. He's a national treasure for sure. Yeah. So we would talk and he would share things and ideas with me and all that stuff. Uh, and many of his catchphrases and philosophies. But it really wasn't until Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, Robert and I had to share an office and I would talk to him on a regular basis and, wrote, you know, swivel around in my chair and chat. I would ask him about what he's doing and how he's doing in his process. I'd see Lancelot Link on his computer or on his on his television, and he'd be giggling like a little boy, like monthly, and <laughs> ask him, why do you think that's so funny? And he would go into these old stories about his days on Yellow Submarine or, you know, early days at Hanna-Barbera with Bill and Joe and whatnot. And, uh, so it was like uh, an animation history class, but you got to share the room with the professor <laughs> Mm -hmm. and listen to all the stories and it was at that time out of curiosity I remember asking Robert hey do you know how many shows you worked on and he had no idea and I said hey you should take this legal pad and just you know as you remember them you remember working on a show just write down the title and that's when we started this list which to this day he has it's been it's been um, transposed into a typed list but he has the handwritten list and it's literally a legal pad with columns down um, like five pages, just single line of titles of shows he's worked on. It's just kind of mind boggling how many shows he's worked on. It really is. When, <clears throat> when I had him on the first time before I hit record, like I usually do with you guys and gals, I'll do a little pre-interview and I'll talk to you to make sure what's matching on IMDb is matching. Cause a lot of times IMDb is false. Didn't realize that until I had a real bad interview that will never be released. Um, <laughs> Cause some people take that shit real serious and just, if I assumed if it was on IMDb, it must be right. Um, he's like, yeah, yeah, I worked on that one. He's like, fuck, I hated that one. He's like, let's please, let's not talk about that. I'm like, holy shit, you're like the first person. He's like, yeah. He's like, I think it, I think at the time he's like, I'm 72 or 73. I can't remember what he said. He's like, I ain't got time for 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 to to screw around and all this other shit. He's like, I'm gonna be directed to the point. He was like, if I piss people off, fuck them. Oh well. I was like, man, I love you already, Robert. This is fantastic. And I just started listing them off. And, I, and, I, and before I even hit record, I'm like, dude, do you realize like the impact? I was like every single show I've listed, I listed in order from my youngest self watching this to what I'm watching now. And I was like, there's not one year of my life of watching cartoons or anything 
that you're not a part of. And he was like, yeah, he's like, it's weird. Ain't it? I'm like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. How, how are you? How are you going to say that's weird? Ain't it type of thing? I was like, dude, you are a fucking legend. He's like, man, I was just doing my job. That's all I was doing. No, 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 no. I was like, that's so what every time I have him on, every time he comes up, I have to make sure that this man, and, and I'm a very small part in this whole thing. You guys do the work. I just like talking to you guys because I'm, I'm a fan of what you guys do. But there's so many people that don't know the Randys, the Robbers, you know, the Robber and Zeddy. You know, they know the Robber and Zeddies because of the shows he's created, the Craig McCrackens, the Gendys. But they don't know you guys and gals that have worked so tirelessly to help these guys and gals fucking dreams and, and, and goals and, and visions come to fruition. Right? You guys, like Robert says, you guys were the mechanics. You guys were the guys underneath the hood making sure all these parts were going and firing at the correct cylinders so this shit could be seen by us fans without you guys we don't have this shit you know so whenever your name comes up robbers come up i want to make sure that people will know gendy just as much as they know randy and know randy just as much as they know craig because like i said in my opinion it's only fair man you guys do just as much work if not more leg work than some of those people that we've mentioned um they just happen to be the showrunner and the creator you know so um but uh yeah like i said robert national treasure man um what was uh camera's got one more here um well it's a two-parter what was it like meeting gendy initially and what do you respect most about him okay so when i met gendy it was 1990 we were both uh starting our first year at cal arts what i remember <laughs> The first, the first thing I remember about him is I thought he was a jerk because um, at CalArts at the time in the animation department, you did not have a, a designated workspace. You had a desk. They would give you a desk, an animation desk, a very crudely built animation desk. If you wanted anything else, if you wanted walls or anything, you had to create it. If you wanted some sort of divider, whether it was a, uh, whether it was a drapery of some kind or whether it was foam core or plywood, you had to do it. So what I did is I- Was it an open warehouse or like an open-, open... So, so it's like an open concept floor plan. Mm -hmm. uh, the building is up in Valencia. The studio, the school's up in Valencia. Um, I think the building was initially designed to be a hospital. Um, CalArts purchased it. Uh, the original location for CalArts was going to be where Pepperdine sits right now, which is on the coast overlooking the ocean. That was too expensive, so they chose Valencia. <laughs> um, and it was on, it's kind of right off the freeway on top of the hill with houses below, very suburb esque. If anybody here has seen Edward Scissorhands, mm -hmm. um, uh, Tim Burton went to CalArts. The house on the hill represents CalArts. Edward kind of represents a student from CalArts. And that suburbia below is Valencia. Mm -hmm. And how the people reacted to Edward is most of the times how most of the people in Valencia react to students at CalArts. Because um, oftentimes there's blue hair or strange clothes or whatnot. But uh, I remember I put up two, three walls around my uh, work area, around my desk. And then the next thing I knew, somebody had pushed their desk up to one of my walls on the opposite side and started uh, hammering and connecting some sort of roof or covering. And it was Gendy. And then Rob 
around the, another wall had done the same thing. So that was my introduction to uh, uh, Gendy Tartakovsky and Rob Renzetti is they were leeching onto my wall. How dare you? Why didn't you ask you SOB? Um, but then as I got to know both Rob and Gendy, I got their backstories from Chicago. Um, Gendy, uh, and then I was well, the one thing I initially respected for Gendy was his work ethic. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, as to nobody's surprise, has a strong work, work ethic. Gendy had a really strong work ethic. He was at his desk, the one that he attached to my wall. He was at that desk all the time working. He was there with purpose and he wasn't going to waste his time there. Um, him and Rob both, by the way. They, like myself, they didn't come right out of high school, they had spent some time in the real world. So they appreciated this opportunity. So they were there to get some work done. So I, my, my first impression of Gendy was, you're a leech, you, you jerk. And then it was, damn, you work hard, you jerk. So, and that's never, that's never changed. He works so hard, crazy hard. How often, when was the last time you talked to him? Have you ever brought up that story since then? I was like, you, you know, I introduced you to your wife. That's a throwback to our episode one. And you also, I, I also sheltered you in Cal Arts. I mean, how often have you brought that one up? Oh, uh, no, it was, I don't think I've ever told him that. I mean, that's <laughs> water under the bridge. You're, 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 the person asking the question was just, you know, asking that question. I'm just remembering back. Yeah. I have, you know, I have good and bad memories about a lot of the people I met initially at Cal Arts, but the overall takeaway was, holy crap, this is a talented bunch of SOBs. Yeah. Indy included, Rob included, Sergio Pablis included, uh, John Sanford, uh, Dean Wellens, John Rip. I mean, it's like a crazy list. Uh, Conrad Vernon. These guys are just phenomenal talents um, who've gone on to do amazing things. And I just feel really lucky that I got to spend a little bit of time there. And I think I may have learned more from them than from my instructors during my couple of years at CalArts. Just being around those guys and, you know, shooting the shit with them. It's funny how that works, ain't it? <laughs> you spend all that money. It's the same thing. When I went to culinary school, uh, there was quite a few guys. And this is not taken away from any of the instructors. I had the best instructors ever. But with me, <clears throat> I'd want to cook since I was 12. So at 12, 20 years ago, I'm watching Emerald Live. I'm watching Bobby Flay. They had a they had a network. They had a, they had a channel, like the Cartoon Network, but for Food Network. Um, where I could watch all this stuff. And then YouTube came around and all this crazy shit. So I had an introduction before I had school. Um, you know, so when I get to school, I'd already really been cooking for 15 plus years, not professionally in a kitchen, but I'd been doing some shit by myself on my own, creating and failing and creating and failing more than creating really. Um, and just coming up with some stuff. So I'd, I'd had a little bit of perspective when it came to food. But when I'm going to school, I'm going to school with people that are right out of high school. I'm going to school with people that have been in the industry for 20 years, 30 years. They've always wanted to go to culinary school and just now can afford it. So, you know, it was just a hodgepodge of different people. And, you know, they, they set you off in groups and stuff like that. And you learn more from watching other people fuck up. You watch other people succeed and you're like, oh, I can take a little bit from here, take a little bit from there. And you just make yourself, you know you're uh, you're developing your, your your own style but you're also absorbing what's good and bad and all that other stuff and i really felt like i learned quite a bit from from the people i worked with um well just before i forget if you ever get gindy on mm-hmm. you got to talk food with him because i don't know if you know this or anybody else knows this he's a crazy foodie yeah he's he loves cooking um before covid every year he would have a barbecue for memorial day at his house 
that was the really the first time he got to spend time with his future wife. Um, he cooks for his family all the time, loves it. He's from Chicago, loves the food. And my favorite thing about Gindian food is at growing up in Chicago, he knows all of the kind of fast foody places, the um, Wiener Circle, the Rico Benny's, Giordano's, because that's what he could afford. Here in LA, he's made money. If you talk food with him now, it's all these nice restaurants like Mastro's or the Palm or whatever. Those are his you know, food spots here in LA. So you can kind of tell he's climbed the ladder a, get, a little bit um, financially. But, uh, and a little throwback to add to your fans, in the episode with the speakeasy and the, uh, the little gangsters, the password to get into the club is Rico Benny Giordano's. <laughs> so it's the name of two of Gandhi's favorite restaurants from Chicago. Well, uh, man, like I said, one one day I hope to have him on here and shit, I could talk food just as much as I could talk animation. I mean, I, I do it for a living. I would hope I could talk food. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> selfless plug, man. If you guys are sitting here listening this long, which you are, uh, check out the Vanilla Gorilla Kitchen. Great place. I run it. So that's me. Um, would you say the thing you respect most about him is his work, work ethic? Yeah, you know, yeah. So there's two kinds of people, two kinds of artists uh, I come across in, in this animation industry. It's the, there's the naturally gifted guys who can't explain why they do what they do. If you ask them, hey, why'd you put that line there? Why'd you make that choice? They can't, because it's just natural to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the guys who really work at it. And that's Gendy. Gendy can't explain to you why he makes a choice, why he does a drawing a certain way because he's put in the time, put in the work, done the study. He's a student of film. Um, he's a student of animation. He knows how, why, why you can do things in animation that you can't do in live action. Um, so yeah, he's, he, he works really, really hard. He's, he's like the James Brown of animation. <laughs> man in animation. Please tell me Gendy's going around doing splits like James Brown was. <laughs> uh, not a chance. <laughs> He, Cody he, Webb wants to know. He's more of a Charles Barkley-esque type <laughs> dancer. Yeah. A round, round of animation. <laughs> yeah, he plays basketball a lot, and I've played basketball with him. I played football with him. We were on a, a flag football team together, and he's more of a muscle tussle, get in there and scrappy kind of guy. He's not a finesse guy. He'll get in there and, and put a body up against you and get to the basket. Man, it's, it's like, I don't want to say we're cut from the same cloth, but cooking, basketball, those are an animation, man. Those are the top three things right there. I mean, I wear every, yeah. every, every interview I've got, I've got my magic hat on here. We're not looking too hot right now. We're a super young team, but we're looking real good next year for the draft. Well, you so, can always talk bulls and bears with them. Oh, man, the bulls are looking super good, man. Super, super good. Um, they got a real young squad, and they took our center last year because we blew up our team. Um, to get some new talent in. <clears throat> uh, Cody Webb wants to know, uh, how old are Verbena and Aster, and how tall are they? Oh, I have Verbena and Aster. I have no idea. I'm not even sure if I know who they're talking about. I'm guessing those are characters. I'm assuming so, and I think it's. I think that that question is from the uh, the reboot they did, or well, the continuation for Adult Swim. I want to say. They sound familiar, um, but I'll, it'll be one of those things I have to Google a little bit later. Yeah, I'm not sure. If the, there's a couple of characters that show up at the beginning of the episode before Jack rides in on the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. It's possible they're talking about those two characters, but 
Yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell you scale on that stuff. Beautiful. No worries. Um, second question is, uh, does a little blonde girl from Aku's fairy tales have a name? Oh, hmm. not that I know of. There, that would be a better question to ask uh, either the writers or designers. Mm-hmm. But by the time I got that episode, if it was just, if the character was just for, referred to as little girl, I went with that. Yeah, um, that works for me, man. Uh, this one is, uh, I don't want to say a little convoluted, but I'm going to ask them all. There is like three, four parts to it, but it's all in a continuation and an explanation of his question. So Samurai JT wants to know, the most important question now is, why is so much of the Korean animation for Cartoon Network shows these days so tight? Lack of in-between animators trying to draw as clean on model as possible. or uh, And then he uses an example. Um, classic Powerpuff Girls had consistently smoother animation than the 2016 to 2019 Powerpuff Girls. So. Um, <laughs> I, I hope, I wish you would ask Robert that because Robert has all kinds of opinions. He, he really doesn't like the reboot stuff. Uh, well, I can tell you the, like most things, the originals were run by the original people mm-hmm. and we had the original influences. Um, there were some design limitations. As I mentioned, Craig was a designer by nature. So when he created the Powerpuff Girls, even all of his designs, um, uh, Wander Over Yonder and Fosters amongst other things and, and Kid Cosmic, he knows when something looks good and when it looks bad. And if mm-hmm. it looks bad in any particular pose, he tells you don't use that pose. I think with the reboot Powerpuff Girls, they ignored some of that it looks bad stuff, which Robert and I would sometimes tell them. Um, I don't think they were as educated as Robert and I would have liked them to be about past episodes, because sometimes they were regurgitating things that the original series had done before. Mm-hmm. Um, they really weren't pushing or adding anything, adding anything new to the characters of the storyline. They did add one new character to the reboot but i don't think it added a lot to the show it was just let's throw in a new character um but as far as the animation some of that is out of our hands so uh what another beauty to gendy and other guys like joaquin de los santos is because they speak the language of animation they can oftentimes communicate with the directors and the animation crews in Korea. Mm-hmm. And Gindi, for example, when he would start a show, he would pull influences, video influences, whether it's live action or animation, and he put together a packet, talk to the directors, go, here's the kind of things that I like. And as an example, Gindi pulled some old Disney cartoons like Rudy Toot Toot, Two Whistle Plunk and Boom, amongst other things, and said, you see what they're doing? It's full animation, but it's stylized. Mm-hmm. It's not constantly moving, but they, they were fans of that too. And they go, oh, now we understand what you want. So even though it sounds like a simple thing to do, not everybody does that kind of idea. And Joaquim, who's, you know, does all kinds of stuff like um, uh, uh, Core of the Last Airbender and the uh, Voltron stuff at Netflix. And he did G.I. Joe Resolute. Um, he's also a designer and animator by nature. And he would sit down with the directors and the animators and draw like, oh, it should be like this. 
Gandhi would do the same thing. He'd redraw stuff and go, it should be like this. This is the arc it should follow. This is the uh, problems in, you know, he'd see a problem in retakes and he'd do a drawing. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody has that skill set. Mm-hmm. So that ability to communicate with them on the same level got a better product. Um, to your the person's question, one of the things that has changed is not everything is being animated by hand now. A lot in Korea still is being animated by hand on paper, but some are using digital medias. Um, and maybe what they're what they're noticing or what they're feeling is a digital in-between as opposed to a hand-drawn in-between mm-hmm. where the computer is placing an in-between and it's not favoring one pose or the other, or it's not following a particular arc in one way or another. So it feels a little bit more stale. Um, that could be, um, but that's also why, you know, all of myself and Gindy got into it. We love animation, whether it's TV or features, we love that process. So um, there's pros and cons with both ways of doing it. Yeah. But you, obviously your viewer is noticing a difference in fluidity, um, a difference in the organic feel to it, as opposed to something that feels a little bit more mechanical. Yeah, there's some of these guys or gals that write in that I love. This is one of my favorite parts of the show because, excuse me, not everybody will get to talk to you guys. Not everybody will want to talk to you guys. And that's not that good, bad, or indifferent or anything like that. It's just some people like to talk and some people just like to ask questions and sit back and, you know, see if they get asked. Um, So I get to see a different perspective. I get to see something through somebody else's eyes for just a little bit. I never thought about some of these things uh, whenever they come up. So it's always nice getting to see somebody else's perspective on the same show you're watching. Um, I already answered that one. Uh, Stealth Boy wants to know, uh, what were your past inspirations? We talked about that a little bit, but what currently inspires you? Is there anything out there, shows, movies that you get really inspired by when you watch? Um, well, being at home, everything's on TV. You watch a lot of streaming stuff. Um, I like what, oh, well, my friend, uh, that I worked with on Samurai Jack, Brian Andrews is doing, uh, just a killer job on the what if Marvel stuff. And, uh, another colleague of mine, Stefan Frank is the head of animation on that. Stefan was my supervising director or supervising animator on Iron Giant. And both of those guys are just killing it on that show. So I like that a lot. Um, it's a beautiful show too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all the, you know, the Pixar stuff, I think is still head and shoulders tremendously better than most things coming out. I think the stuff coming out of Europe is gotten a lot better. The, um, was it, uh, the Wolf Walker type stuff, the Celtic type stuff. Gendy's even using a French studio. He used a French studio for, um, the primal, Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to continue using them for that. And a lot of other people have reached out to them. So, I, you know, those are a lot of fun. Um, I like a lot of the live action, you know, I, the Mandalorian stuff is great. That kind of storytelling that Favreau's doing. Um, the book of Boba Fett, which just started again. Uh, I, I really like the where Marvel has taken the Disney Plus stuff, the Loki the Hawkeye, Hawkeye the was Soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like that kind of stuff. In animation, Jorge just did Maya and the Three, oh, which, 
released on Netflix, and that's a lot of fun. My first Chris Williams, who did um, Big Hero 6 and Bolt, he's got a long form coming out on Netflix, which I'm excited about, but I don't want to say too much about because it, it hasn't been released yet. Um, Craig's Kid Cosmic, you know, Beautiful. Craig gets another opportunity to do some phenomenal stuff. Elizabeth Ito did a show um, on Netflix, which is great. And Sanjay Patel, a friend of mine who's doing G Happy on Netflix. So I'm looking forward to that. That one's been in the works for a long time. And I'm I'm hoping it'll air soon or start airing soon because uh, I've seen behind the scenes stuff. But going back to Jorge for a little bit, Jorge is also another very smart, very talented storyteller, filmmaker, designer. Um, and you talk about me being kind of a behind the scenes person. His wife, Sandra, is really the the engine, I think, that drives things. Yeah, a lot the muse is what he calls her. Yeah, the muse, exactly. Yeah. Um, she's, I, I like it when Sandra gets her time in the spotlight, even though I think she's uncomfortable in the spotlight because she deserves it all the way back to early days of LT Gray and stuff with her design sense. Because um, she's tremendously, tremendously talented and, and Jorge's reaping all the benefits from her talent. Um, but really, she's almost like a Mary Blair type hero where she's somebody who does all this amazing work and doesn't get talked about enough. Um, like you mentioned with Gendy getting the spotlight, Jorge gets the spotlight thrust upon him and he's comfortable. Every once in a while, she's pulled out of the shadows, thrown into the spotlight, but somebody who deserves a notoriety. Um, my friend, Joe Colton, who did Abominable, I really enjoyed Abominable. And she, I, I just caught up with her recently on a Zoom call. She was actually one of the early directors. She was slated to direct uh, Hotel Transylvania early on. Really? And yeah, there was like eight people at different times at Sony that were going to direct that movie. And Gendy was the one who finally convinced them to make it a certain way. And they went with his vision. But she was, at one point, she was slated to be on that. So um, there's, to answer the question, there's lots of things. Um, I still love comic books. I, I recently I moved and I discovered some of the Samurai Jack stuff, but I also discovered some of my old comic book loves. And I have an old early run, the earliest run of Silver Surfer, who was one of my influences earlier on. I, I have the um, early run where he was introduced in Fantastic Four. And then I have the first like 20 issues of his very first run of his own title. So I got to revisit those again. And, you know, it's, it's just like what your viewers do with, um, with cartoons, you know, you, you get nostalgic. Yeah. I've got that on my shelf. I got my surfers up behind me back. Oh, I, I, I see him. Yeah. And off camera, there's a whole silver surfer collection and stuff. And all my comics are boxed, you know, bags and boards in a box trying to keep them safe. But, um, you know, it's fun to, like you did with Samurai Jack, you re revisit those things that influenced you at, at a young age, because there's that nostalgia, it, mm -hmm. it reinvigorates you with enthusiasm, motivation, inspiration. And that happens to me all the time, too, whether it's an old television show. An old, oh, we watch the old, this time of year, we watch the old Rankin and Bass stuff. Yeah, uh, that stop motion stuff. And what's cool, I can't talk too much about it, but there's, we watch that old Rankin and Bass stuff, and I'm working on a project with a production company now that's stop motion. And it's funny and interesting how much stuff has changed and how much it stayed the same in stop motion world. Um, the technology is advanced and yet it's not. So that's kind of cool to see. Um, 
So, and, and I'm dealing with a lot of studios now that are dealing with harmony and flash and digital processes. And what's funny is everybody wants to work digitally, but they want it to look traditional. They want it to look traditional 2D. And, but when you say, why don't you just do it 2D? It's like, well, we don't know. We're worried about this or that. And I'm like, okay. And a lot, most time it's a budget thing. Um, but they're just so your viewers know, myself and others are constantly trying to work with young people who've never drawn on paper and animated on paper, who've only known to animate digitally. We're trying to infuse with them some of the sensibilities of what it's like to animate on paper and try to get them to apply that to digital animation. I really hope that that makes a comeback. I would love to see a show go 100% old school, go back to paper, because somebody brought it up on one of the previous, excuse me, <clears throat> somebody brought it up on one of the previous episodes where um, I think Robert was explaining or Robert was talking about it. And they asked, uh, like, why do you feel like digital doesn't seem as warming as, as traditional does? And then he was like, is it because of the imperfections or, or what? And he was like, well, it, you feel like, <clears throat> God damn, I don't know why my voice is cracking, but he's like, when somebody's scratching something into a piece of paper, you have to account for an erase mark. You have to put this here. He's like, ah, there, there's, there's imperfections in each, each line. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be smoothed out. When you put it on something that's digital, you can make it a perfect circle. You can make it a perfect anything. Yeah. And he was like, when you have that character that might be shaped a little bit differently from, you try to get it as close as possible, but if you shape it a little differently from time to time, you have soul, you have character in your character. And uh, I, I really feel like that's missing. I don't want to say it's missing because it makes me sound pretentious and it makes it sound like I know what I'm talking about. What I really don't, I'm just sitting here bullshitting at this point, but <clears throat> me excuse me me specifically i love that and maybe it's just because it's what i grew up on it's it's what i'm nostalgic for you always think whatever's the best for you is kind of what you grew up on whatever you were listening to music wise you know cartoon wise when you were growing up that's your favorite type of shit because that was the stuff you were inundated with on a consistent basis so i hope to see a studio make it in vogue again to go back and do that traditional style of animation. I, I, I want to see it back at least one more time before I'm gone and uh, bring up one more person, uh, Jorge Gutierrez. I, I'm so glad you bring him up because he's come up three or four times in the last few episodes. The book, of, I've said this numerous times, the book of life, Coco, the book of life. Nobody ever talks about the book of life. All they talk about is Coco. And Jorge, if you're watching this, Come on the show, please. Book of Life and Coco. The, the Book of Life is such a beautiful, beautiful, like that. I saw that movie a couple years ago, right when it started airing on TV, about a year or two after it came out at a theaters and stuff like that. And I remember watching it. I'm like, holy shit. The fact that this thing is animated and it made me damn near tear up. Yeah. And it made me feel for these characters because it's not like it's a Mickey Mouse. It's not like it's a Donald Duck. Like you don't have these years and years and years and years of, you know, care for these characters. You don't have these years of just consistently seeing them and feeling you don't have a bond built up of years and years of trust. 96 minutes or 108 minutes, whatever it is, that movie, it makes you feel for every it makes you hate a character, it makes you love a character, it makes you feel bad for a character. It does everything 
something great and a masterpiece should do. It makes you elicit some kind of emotion, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. I, that movie, I watch that movie at least two or three times a year, every year. And it is phenomenal. I mean, that guy, and same thing with his wife, is it, yeah. a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. You should have Jorge or Jorge and Sandra on. He's, um, he's a great storyteller, not just on screen. Him telling you a story is tremendous. He's, he, I don't want to spoil anything, but to get Book of Life, he had to get Guillermo del Toro on board as a producer. His story telling that, what he went through with that is hilarious. And you, you really feel every part of it with him. Um, but the other aspect that people, I think, assume is if a movie gets made, creative people are throwing a bunch of money and they can do whatever they want. And that's not the case. And artists actually need and more than often than not thrive on limitations. Mm -hmm. And with Book of Life, that was really a new proving ground for Jorge. He had done some stuff in television with Buzz on Maggie, with El Tigre. He almost did something at a Sony, I think, at the time. But with Book of Life, he had an opportunity, but he still had some limitations. And he made the most of those limitations. There's some great footage of behind the scenes where he talks about you know, running out of money, still needing to do a shot. But it forces you to do the one thing that you think would be natural, which is be creative. You have to be a creative problem solver on how to address something. Um, a, a great and very obvious example of this is Steven Spielberg was given nothing but limitations on Jaws, and it's a great movie. Steven Spielberg had every, every dollar in the world to make AI, and it was a terrible movie. So when they have every toy in the toy box to play with, you know, maybe it's not going to be so great. You have to have good characters, good stories, and in some cases, you can benefit from limitations. Even on Iron Giant, the limitations thrown at Brad Bird in the end benefited the movie because he couldn't think big all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, all this big grandeur, he had to think, oh, wait, it's about these two characters. It's really just about this little thing. Um, I had another friend who directed uh, Kung Fu Panda, and he wasn't the first director on there. He was like the third, I think. And so he had to cut a bunch of stuff early on so that they could actually get the movie done in time, which again, made it more about the main character and his journey, uh, his goals, his achievements, his challenges. And it ended up being better for those changes he had to make. So back to the point, get Jorge on. Jorge, oh. tremendous storyteller. Um, he's so fun to listen to and talk to. Trust me, I've tried. I know he's seen my messages, but if he does, he does. If he doesn't, he doesn't. I don't want to chase anybody too, too hard. If they want to come on, I'd love to have him on. Maybe one day he'll uh, he'll decide to come on. Um, where are we at? Oh, here we are. Uh, this one was probably my favorite question of all time, and I don't feel like the scale is big enough. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how cool is Jack? Oh, yeah, he is off the charts. Cool. Yeah. It's, he's he's like, at least a 17, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's like uh, he's like Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe cool. I mean, he's John Wick cool. He's, you know, he's, yeah, he's the, he's the coolest of the cool. Yeah, that's the whole purpose of him. He's he's always the coolest person in the room, the, the person who's going to uh, figure it out, get out of it, save whoever, do whatever is possible. Yeah, he's, he's a samurai. I mean, what else can you say? 
Yeah. I mean, uh, so this is the last one for Twitter and then we got a couple more over on Facebook and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, oh, man, I'm, I apologize for butchering your name. Uh, Piero Holm. Uh, have you played the new Samurai Jack game? No. It's no. fun. You should check it yeah. out. It's, it's, yeah, it's really fun. Here's a, uh, here's a little throwback for you. There was going to be an early Samurai Jack game. Really? There was going to be early Powerpuff toys for boys. And they because they brought them to the studio when we were making the shows at the time, they showed us the like an early... Um, oh, the concept and, art. Yeah, Craig showed me that. Well, we played a game. They had to get like a couple of playable things that we could do with the Jack game with him running around and slicing and stuff because we had a big TV set up. So we got to see that. And then with the Powerpuff stuff, they even shot a commercial that had concept art and it was all about the monsters having arms you could pull off and you could change them around. With, um, but then they didn't go with it. So I don't know the new Samurai Jack game. I only know the old one that never got made. Yeah, the uh, new one's an alternate reality. It's a uh, Jack Jack through. Oh man, I'm gonna butcher the name. It's Jack through time or something like that, or back in time. Um, I, I can't remember, but it's it takes place where the uh, the adults one one picks up, and it's uh, like an alternate base reality one. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I picked it up on the Switch, and uh, I had a lot of fun. I, I started playing it. I'm like, shit, I got to go back and rewatch this season one more time because I guarantee there's something in here that I'm missing. But uh, the reason they asked if uh, if he if you ask him if he knows how to get past the chestnut achievement, pretty please, I am struggling. <laughs> so nope. Isn't there isn't there always a video on YouTube that tells oh, you how you can get past a level? A hundred percent. I'm sure they can find it. Um, so uh, Jeremy Step wants to know, or Steep, excuse me, uh, how do you know the difference between honoring what has been done while not stealing from it? I'd like to do an American version of an anime style, but don't want to insult anyone. What advice would you give me? Well, don't do a shot for shot ripoff. Um, whatever is your inspiration, try to understand why you're reacting to that. And you're, what you're trying to emulate is that um, getting that emotion out. If you just do it shot for shot, you're stealing. If you see something that makes you feel a certain way, understand, spend the time to understand why you're reacting that way and then try to recreate that, but do it in your own way, not the way the other person did it. Do it in your own way. Beautiful. Great advice. We got two more here. Um, you might not know this one. Uh, did you work on the Adult Swim Run? Yeah. Okay, cool. I thought you did. I thought I saw your name pop up quite a few times. <clears throat> God damn, I don't know what's wrong with my throat tonight. <laughs> Uh, Ricardo Soto wants to know in episode XC, I'm going to say seven. I think it's season five, episode six. I'm horrible with Roman numerals. Uh, that's me, that was up. difficult for all of us on the show. <laughs> yeah. It's season five, episode six. Okay. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to I probably, can you see that picture? Yeah. Okay. So that's the screenshot he sent. Um, and he wanted to know in that episode, who was the mysterious lady who took Ashi to Jack dot, 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 who in capital letters. Who was, well, I know there was a mistress who was in charge of Aku's daughters, um, which I think they kill, but uh, I don't beyond that. I don't know um, when we did, 
unlike the other, the first four seasons where we were all in the studio at the same time, when Gendy did season five, most of it was freelanced out and we were all scattered to the winds doing our parts of it. So mm -hmm. I didn't have the access that I used to have with when we were all under one roof. Um, so I wasn't really, a, I didn't have the insight on season five that I had on the first four seasons. So that was a little bit of a bummer. Uh, and I wish I could answer that because <laughs> that sounds like a cool question, but I don't have a clear, concise answer for that person. No worries at all. Um, <clears throat> there was a couple people that actually uh, commented. So um, Darren had posted, I've wondered that myself. I had the thought it wasn't, I'm, I think my dog's having a nightmare downstairs. Oh no! Yeah, I got a fourteen-year-old pit uh, rescue pit bull, oh. and uh, he's he's definitely—I don't want to say he's reaching the end of you know his his time here, but he's he's definitely reaching the end. He's fourteen years old, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, he's like uh, Darren said, I've wondered that myself. I had the thought it was an I'm a candy child. Pretty sure I butchered that name. And then Ricardo sent back, uh, well, Gendy seems to have a track record of never revealing things like the last names of Dexter and DD. Why does Dexter talk that way? And what accent is that? Why does DD keep going to Dexter's lab? The real name of Samurai Jack and everything before uh, the Scotsman before Jack arrived in the future, dot, 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 dot. So um, it's, I guess it was a uh, lively debate, people trying to figure it out. Um, and then Rashawn seems, last question. Uh, Rashawn seems wants to know, uh, I'm curious of the switch to more serious adult themes and the transition between season three and four. Jack had always had excellent fight scenes, but always against robots. But in season four, he got to show just how deadly he was against living creatures. Do you guys remember, have a conscious uh, conversation about switching to a more adult theme? Uh, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we were always trying to mix it up a little bit with, mm -hmm. uh, lighter episodes and heavier episodes, uh, with subject matter and tone. Uh, Jack was always trying to struggle with his internal fight with what, what, what had happened to him in the past and trying to get back there. Um, and with his, you know, this, this turmoil with uh, Aku throughout all, all this stuff and his role in it. So no, I don't think there was a conscious effort. I, I more than anything, I think it was just somebody had a cool idea in the writer's room and then the board artist that took that episode would push and try to play it up as much as they could to get the best payoff as possible, whether it was a comedic payoff or an action payoff. And sometimes those board artists achieved them at you know, other levels, like Mark Andrews, who went on to direct Brave um, and, and other pic movies at Pixar. Um, he did some stuff for us and his action was always just tremendous off the charts. Um, Whereas other guys who did good action like Eric Weiss, it was just different. It didn't, maybe it just didn't come off as dramatic as this viewer uh, felt. So no, there wasn't a conscious effort uh, between those seasons to make a change. Um, it just ended up that way. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Like I said, uh, thanks for doing this again. I, I really appreciate it between you know, these two episodes, we got about six hours worth of uh, with us chatting. I really enjoyed it. I, very rarely do I get to sit back. I get comments all the time. They're like, shut the hell up. This is your show, but your guests are on here. We want to listen to them more. So very rarely do I get to like sit back and just get to ingest whatever's going on because there's so much stuff 
Robert had made this uh, this comment. He was like, on all of those behind the scenes, uh, like not like a documentary, but behind the scenes um, films or videos that they would shoot for, you know, Samurai Jack season one, two and three, all the director's cuts and all that stuff. Very rarely do you get to see much of what we discussed here, right. you know, they'll show you, like, I think in the, the first season one, they show, you know, the, the pitching and stuff like that, where people over there with laser pointers or pointer sticks and shit like that. And they're walking through scene progressions and they're pitching storyboards and they're pitching episodes. So you see that type of stuff. But when I get to sit here and just go super deep, like the matrix, right. It's super topical right now. If I can go red pill, blue bill, we find out what was really going on or what you thought about and what you were taking from, you know, your inspirations, your past experiences and all this other crazy shit. And you guys put this into the art you were making. It really made it personal. It really made it fun. It, it, like, like I said, when I went back and rewatched this show, I could not appreciate what you guys did on a day-to-day basis to make this show. In my opinion, you know, I've had almost the entire cast and crew of Ed, Ed and Eddie on here from all of the AKA guys. Um, and I, I love that cartoon. Don't get me wrong. However, in my opinion, from when Cartoon Network started till now, there has never been a show that has done what Jack has done. <clears throat> there is. Ne- and I don't want to be pessimistic because I, I do get this comment quite often that I, I tend to shit on, which I don't try to, but I tend to shit on the newer stuff, which that's not my intention. It's just what I love is what I push. If, if I don't know something or if I've never watched something, I can't, you know, I can't put my name behind it and say, Hey, this is just as good as X, Y, and Z. Uh, it, it's just how I'm wired. If I watch it, I watch, it, I love it. Um, and there's, in my opinion, there's nothing that has come close to what you guys did on Samurai Jack. Um, like I said, thank you for, for, for spending some more time with me today. And thanks for what you did on Samurai Jack, you know, without, without people like you and a lot of the names that we mentioned, we don't get this masterpiece that we got the Gendy created Gendy thought of, but you guys really helped and put in the hard work, the many hours. I'm sure it was crazy, especially like you were saying, each episode looked different from episode to episode. So being in a different world, each episode took a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, I'm sure. Um, and you guys really just absolutely crush the show. Well, sometimes a chef gets a good sous chef and sometimes <laughs> they get somebody who's crap. So this, in this case, Gendy, you know, was our, was a great chef and mm. we were surrounded by a lot of really good sous chefs. Yeah. You got, like I said, man, it, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I know you said you can't talk about what you're doing now until they release a little bit more information, but is there anything out there that you can help promote or you, you would like to promote or anything you're working on that might be coming out soon that we can try to push traffic towards? Well, not yet, but okay. uh, well, here's, here's where you can put. So I've transitioned recently. Uh, I was at Cartoon Network up until a few months ago, mm-hmm. but I made a career move-ish and now I'm with Apple Studios. Okay. And I can tell you there's some really cool stuff that's going to be coming out on Apple Plus mm-hmm. or people who like animation, um, everything from, as I mentioned, stop motion, 2D, uh, CG across the board, some great young viewer stuff. But all the stuff I'm currently working on there is very early on, and I can't really say anything. I can only tease that there's a a lot of content that's being worked on right now that's pretty cool um, that I'm looking forward to seeing. So so check out Apple Plus if you guys have a chance. maybe in about three to six months. Beautiful. It sounds like you're going to have to come back on in three to six months and tell us what you've been working on for the last three to six months. Um, Real quick, before you go, uh, are you a Beastie Boys fan? 
I am. Yes. Have you seen the documentary on Apple Plus or uh, Apple TV, whatever it's called? Apple TV, yeah. I think is what it's called. I have not seen it. I've seen the little bug for it, the button for it, but I haven't watched it yet. Um, yeah, because I grew up. Yeah, they're still on my my phone, my music playlist. Yes, all the time. Um, yeah, uh, I have not seen the documentary, but I'm. Trust me, I got time. I'll watch it. It is. It is. There's there's two shows because I just <clears throat> I got a new phone recently. Um, and when I got a new phone, they give you a year for a uh, year for Apple TV for free. Right. Um, so I've just been going down the rabbit hole and seeing what else, what, whatever's on there. And I saw the Beastie Boys and I'm such a fan. The only downside is I haven't watched or listened to anything. Well, obviously anything new because, you know, MCA died back in 2012, yeah. um, which was my favorite of the Beastie Boys. Uh, and, uh, that was probably the first time I ever cried about somebody I never met that passed away. That one, that one hit me real hard. Um, but I, I was flipping through Apple TV and then I see this and I was like, Beastie Boys, huh? And I, you know, I click on it and it's, you know, it was done last year, year before last, um, or it might've even been, you know, this year, I'm not sure. Um, but it was very recently and they go and they're doing this almost like a spoken word tour, but they're going through their entire career, you know, as that rock and then it's uh, Mike D and they're just talking about all this cool shit. And it's kind of like what we're doing now. You're getting to see the behind, you're seeing how the sausage is made and where they started and how they got to what they're doing, you know, their influences, all this other crazy shit. I cannot recommend that documentary. It is spectacular. And the other one, uh, if you like old Western shit, 1883, I think yeah. there's like two or three episodes. Yeah, that Elliot, really yeah. good. That's on the that's on the queue to watch. Yeah, for sure. Well, since you brought up Sam Elliott, who's got a better mustache, Robert Alvarez or Sam Elliott? Oh, it's a tough well, one. It's a tough one, but uh, I've known Robert's mustache a lot longer. Um, you know, we even had a mustache day at Cartoon Network because <laughs> of Robert Alvarez. So I'm going to go with his. Yeah, his. his I think his is a lot better too. Uh, what would? This will be the last story. Wait a minute, though. Did you ever see? Did Robert ever show you any of the pictures of him in his younger days? No. Uh, do you know who Frank Zappa is? Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is just, you're probably the only one that'll get a kick out of this. So, Robert. Um, He's not going to talk to me anymore after this episode, is he? <laughs> I'm going to find it. I know it's here someplace. I did a lecture where I got to host Robert. So, I was the. Uh, the host asking him questions and I went back and found some old photos of him that I knew had existed. Um, see, I, I got to show this to you. Let me see. Where is it? So in his younger days, before his hair went white, yes, he, he had the mustache and the long hair. Yeah, that's it. Um, and he looks just like a young Frank Zappa. Holy shit. <laughs> God damn, man. Yep. Dude, crushing it. Got the shirt buttoned down a couple I'm buttons. I'm telling you, the denim shirt buttoned down, the puka shell thing. Yeah, he's rocking it. Dude, he was killing it back in the day. And, huh? and did you see it? I mean, come on. that That's Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott-esque. Sam Elliott got that. shit on that mustache. And then, um, let me see what else. So, let's see. You know Robert from that. But do you know, speaking of Western Robert Alvarez... That's Robert Alvarez. Holy shit. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if Robert told you, but he did Civil War reenactments. That's Robert yes. in the middle in the front row. Wow. That's a more recent one, I assume. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. He's an old soul. Yeah, man. He's a good dude, dude. Uh, before I let you go, man, mustache day, would you guys just all grow out mustaches or? Uh, some did. Yes. We would get a heads up and people would try. Some people glued it on. <laughs> some people drew it on. Who had the uh, worst? I, um, for some reason, I'm remembering Craig Miller having an awful mustache. Craig Miller <laughs> uh, was the creator of whatever happened to Robot Jones. Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, in my mind, I'm remembering an awful mustache on him. So, yeah, it was that was a fun time. Oh, I can only imagine, man. This has been a fun chat, man. He's been Randy. I've been Julian. This has been the What's in My Head podcast. And this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night. Good night. Thanks again for checking out the What's in My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.